Hello, hello, one and all. Welcome to the Free Domain Radio Sunday Philosophy Call-In Megaborg Brain Extravaganza. I hope you're doing very well. It's me. I feel so familiar with you now. Not only would I not introduce myself, but that is my hand on your thigh. Oh, yes. So, uh, he, you've been working out. <laughs> Flex for me, baby. So, I hope you're doing well. I uh, wanted to mention that um, on the 30th of this month, the one, the only great Jeffrey Tucker will be co-hosting the Sunday show. If you would like to ask him questions uh, about how to achieve his kind of magnificent sartorial splendor, please uh, email operations at freedomainradio.com. And um, as usual, of course, if you have questions that you'd like me to throw my frontal lobes at and tackle, uh, much like a squid taking down a ghost, you can email mailbag at freedomainradio.com. Dot com. So uh, I hope you're doing well. Hope you're having a great, great week. Uh, my week is not bad. Not bad. I feel uh, the, um, the, uh, the, the treatment for the, the cancer is wearing me down just a little bit. Uh, I've done three out of four and uh, just one more to go early next month. And then I'm done that. And then a little bit of radiation uh, because I really feel that the back of my throat has not received sufficient tanning uh, during the course of my life. So I will be rectifying that. And so I feel a little bit, it's a, just a little rundown. What happens, of course, for those who don't know all the excitement of this stuff is that um, when you have your white blood cells and your red blood cells and your white blood cells fight infections and your red blood cells uh, carry oxygen, of course, around your body and the production of these is uh, interfered with through, uh, through chemotherapy. So the white blood cells replenish relatively quickly. I think it's sort of around it's a 10-day, 15-day cycle. But the red blood cells are much slower. Uh, it's, a, I think, about a 60 to 90 day cycle. So you get the sort of progressively a little bit less energy as you go along. As yet, it remains somewhat variable, uh, like yesterday. So I had like an hour and a half nap in the afternoon, and then I had a pretty hard workout. So <laughs> it's hard to know. But I just, yeah, I'm feeling a little bit, uh, a little bit run down, and that's going to last a little bit after the chemo. And, uh, yeah, in our socialist paradise of uh, free healthcare here, uh, I was offered a treatment which is supposed to stimulate white cell, blood cell production, which will set me back over two treatments uh, only about $3,000. Isn't it great when you pay over 50% in taxation that you don't have to pay for any other healthcare? Oh, wait, except for the $3,000 worth of treatment that reduces the chance of, uh, uh, of infection when your white blood cell count is low. So... I remain mulling that one over. Uh, but anyway, uh, other than that, uh, things are going well. Of course, uh, I really appreciate everybody's kind, well, and wonderful wishes. Uh, I really, um, it, it does, it does, it does me good uh, to, to feel everybody's love. And uh, of course, I return it as well. We are engaged in an incredibly gripping and powerful conversation here. A paroxysm of rational geyser thought the world, I think, has scarcely seen before largely as a result of this technology and the kindness, wisdom, generosity of you, the listener. You know, this show is driven by your energy. I sort of feel <laughs> sometimes like you know, those old Western movies where a guy is standing on like two horses <laughs> trying to catch two other horses. Um, and uh, this show feels a little bit like I'm hosting it, but mostly it feels like I'm just hanging on and trying to <laughs> to make sure it doesn't um, doesn't go off a cliff or uh, into a wall. 
because you, you guys' energy drives so much of this conversation, and uh, I really appreciate that. Uh, even the, I just did a video, Life in a Mental Zombie Apocalypse, a day in the life of YouTube comments, and I even appreciate the people who, um, who, who comment in, in these terrible ways. And I actually don't mean to sort of mock them or anything like that, but I mean, I guess I do a little bit, but, but the reality is, what I think is, is so terrible about modern thinking is the degree to which we think we can think when we can't, right? That's, that's the problem, all right? Irrationality is the new religion in that religion gives you answers that prevents you looking for more answers and in fact makes you hostile to more answers, to real answers. They give you the illusion of answers. And modern vanity, the modern vanity of thinking because you can type, you can think. The modern vanity of thinking that because you're video, good at video games, you're good at philosophy. That modern vanity prevents people from realizing how not good at thinking they are. And irrationality is fundamentally the new religion that prevents the exploration of real answers by providing illusory answers. Look, I can get angry. Look, I can type in caps. Look, I can nitpick. Therefore, I can think. And uh, it's really tragic. You know, when you do... I, just, I think I understand why. Why people feel this way. Uh, because having gone through it myself, once you realize... <sighs> you know, it's like if you, if you ever like to sing. I love to sing myself. It's, it's a great joy in my life. And... There is always that moment, I guess, you know, <laughs> Pavarotti, Freddie Mercury, other people, uh, Michael Bublé, people with, uh, you know, Josh Groban, people with great silvery pipes, they probably don't feel this when they first listen to a recording of themselves singing back. They think like, wow, that's even better than I thought. But for most of us who like to sing, you will record yourself, you'll hear yourself back and you say, oh, that's why I don't fill stadiums. And it's almost like you think you're sounding like sting and then you end up hearing yourself back sounding like William Hung and that's really tragic so when people do get a sense of how badly they think or how really what they do is anti-thinking it's really painful I mean it's humiliating it's humbling you know our first exposure with that which humbles us always feels humiliating because because we haven't been told that we're not good right I saw a um it's a dance contest. I can't, it's some reality TV. It's not, it's not Dancing with the Stars. It's just some... So, Oh, So You Think You Can Dance, I think it's called. I was flipping through the channels one day, and I watched an audition, and there was this guy. He was terrible. He was terrible. He was terrible. And, you know, wrongly dressed for the occasion and so on. And the, the judges actually... And he was a pretty young guy. Not too young, but pretty young. And the judges actually turned to his mother and said, why, why are you, like, why are you bringing him here? Why are you encouraging this? You can see from the outside what he's doing. This is not good for him. This is, no, they, they weren't actually that upset with him. They were upset with his mother for filling him so full of these delusions that he literally thought he could go and win a dance contest when he barely knew how to move from one side of the stage to the other. And he wasn't mentally handicapped. I mean, he had a conversation with them. But once you realize how badly you can think, it's incredibly painful. Because you're supposed to have been taught how to think. Wasn't that the whole point of our education was to learn how to reason, to learn how to think, to learn how to question? But no, that was the exact opposite of the point of our education. It was to turn us into nice little Prussian worker ants and lead toy soldiers to be hurled into whatever welfare, warfare, fire the leaders happened to have on their itchy trigger fingers at the time pointed at. It's very humiliating when you realize 
what's been taken from you by being trained to not think, by being trained to react, by being trained to be emotional, by being trained to attack, by being trained to deflect and divert. Once you realize how you've been crippled by the system, it's incredibly painful. And you realize how complicit everyone is in you becoming crippled. The school cannot break you if your parents are making you. But I don't think school can make you much if your parents are breaking you. But it's impossible to grow up not knowing how to think without almost everyone in your life being complicit in that process. For their own reasons, whether they're selfish or defensive, doesn't really matter. But once you realize that you have had your birthright, I mean, is this not the essence of what it is to be a human being, is to reason? Is this not the essence of what it is to be human, to know how to reason? Is there anything else which differentiates us fundamentally from all other carbon-based life forms than our ability to conceptualize, to reason, to philosophize? Philosophy, for want of a better phrase, is the soul of the species. Philosophy is the soul of the species. It is what differentiates us from all other animals, as a soul differentiates us from all other animals in theological terms. And when your natural capacity to reason is blocked, is overturned, is crushed, is turned into a fine powder of insomniac regret, your soul has been taken from you. This is why, of course, the stories of the undead who thirst for brains but never get their fill are so common in the world because this situation is so common in the world and so tragic and so necessary for the horrors of the system that we live in. So once you realize that your ability to reason is gone, has been stripped away from you. The way it always seemed to me was that my brain was removed from my skull, pushed up against a cheese grater and ground until there were huge gaping craters in it where my essence, my humanity, my soul should have been. And you can reclaim it and you can rebuild it. And you are stronger. You are the $6 million man. You are stronger afterwards. But it is a... It is a gruesome and grueling process, right? The undead don't look dead if you walk with them. But when you walk against them, well, you see them for what they are and they see you for what you are. And you're like Samwise and Frodo walking with the orcs. Do not let them see too deep under your helmet. Just pretend you're a very short goblin. Cross your fingers and hope to cross through. So here, we resurrect. Here, we recover. Here, we regrow. And here, we do save the future. Speaking of which, let's bring up the first caller. First up today is Danny. Hello, Danny. Hello. Hi. What's in your mind? Um, okay, you can hear me, right? Yes. Okay. All right. I wasn't sure. 
Um, all right, Stefan. I've tried calling up a few times in the last couple of weeks, and uh, various reasons it just doesn't come to pass. Um, the last year, or maybe two years, after I'd become kind of a, an avowed atheist, um, and a staunch, a very staunch anarchist, both very staunch militants, even. Um, I've been kind of circling this, the, the notion of um, nihilism uh, after I had become an atheist. And um, it's driven me to a point where, um, I don't know if it's, um, if it's an empathy issue or an emotional issue, but I see myself as... Um, uh, have you ever seen the uh, the movie The Watchmen? Um, I think I watched the first third of it. I did not find it uh, very gripping, and I never finished it. But um, I, I know the thing. I think I remember the basic idea. Okay. Well, one of the characters, Doctor Manhattan, uh, as you watch him, he is uh, increasingly detached um, and disinterested in human affairs. And I find oh, he's the guy who looks like uh, he looks like the the god of the Blue Man Group, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, to that degree, uh, or to, the, to analogize, that's kind of where I've been um, kind of feeling myself out as. Um, the more I look at things in a very scientific and fundamental way, the less I see um, um, uh, um, I don't see life as not worthwhile. How do I I guess I would put it, no reason to live, no reason not to live, if you will. And that has been some, has been causing distress among, within myself, and it seems to me, um, people I associate with. Um, is there a point okay, where... But, but, but sorry, you but, but what, what you're talking about is an issue of, of happiness, not an issue fundamentally of philosophy, right? I mean, if you were happy, then you would have good reason to live, right? Like, right in, the um, of a great, I, right in the middle of a great orgasm, we don't sit there and say, well, what's the point of it all, right? Why, why, why am I even doing this, right? Because it's like, that's a great orgasm. So, yay, <laughs> let's do that again, you know, if we're 17 in 10 minutes, and if we're not, then, uh, you know, 12. But the issue here, fundamentally, I would imagine, is not philosophical. Uh, I mean, it's not to say happiness is not philosophical, but... If you had the emotional experience of happiness, gratification, satisfaction, whatever it is that you'd want to call it, then the purpose of living, right? The purpose of living only arises for us within our minds, I think, when we lack, uh, lack happiness, right? It becomes a bit of a, a bit of a death spiral then, right? Because it's like, well, I'm not happy, so what's really the point of being alive? Uh, and then you start to question the meaning of everything, and you go fully introspective, and uh, and so on, and then you have a secret. You have to hide from everyone, which is that you're not really sure what the point of being alive is, and that makes you feel more isolated, which often drives further detachment and, and so on, right? I suppose. I mean, it's not that I... I mean, some people have said I'm unhappy. Other people, when I go to work, I seem to have a very joyous and extroverted, and uh, I talk a lot on the phones. Um, I like talking to people. I like in people's company, but... Um, at the same time, I find it uh, a little 
stressful just because when I approach things logically and I approach things in a very rational sense, um, I find a lot of people seem to really not like that. It seems to be very off-putting. It, um, I don't allow the emotional aspects of my life, the emotional, I don't allow emotions to govern my thoughts. And as a result, people see that as me being um, unemotional, detached, um, uh, cold, whereas I'm just looking at things much like you look at a math equation. Um, okay, so I just... Uh, and I think that's where... Sorry, just a sec. I just asked people in the chat room, a quick poll. Does he sound happy? Um, we've had some responses say, no, no, very flat. No, he doesn't. His voice sounds depressed. No, and so on. Uh, now, that's not scientific. I just wanted to give you... You, you don't sound happy to me, um, and uh, you don't sound happy to anyone else in the chat room. Uh, so that may be something that doesn't prove, right, any, any sort of emotional state, but um, it's pretty consistent uh, that... Um, uh, that, that you don't sound happy to, to other people. But now, you, you say that when you approach things in a rational context. Now, rational is a word that's very heavily laden. Very heavily laden. Right. And <laughs> I, I, I will share with you something <laughs> that may be uh, entirely too much information. So when I was younger, uh, I was, um, uh, I was uh, directing a play, and uh, I ended up having um, an affair with... Um, uh, the set designer. And anyway, so at one, at one point we were in bed and um, um, I don't know, I sucked her toes because they were just cute. And she said, hey, I thought you were all about reason and, and rationality. You know, what are you doing with my toes? And I said, what, what's irrational about sucking toes? <laughs> it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and and I, I, that, that always struck me as a very sort of like, well, you know, Spock wouldn't suck toes because that's irrational, or whatever it is, you know, like, it just seems like, what, what, so what is irrational about sucking toes? And there, of course, was, there's absolutely nothing irrational about sucking uh, toes. Um, and so that is something that is important to, at least was important, it was sort of an important point for me uh, in my life where I realized that people have this prejudice, in a sense, against rationality, right? I mean, it's the reason-emotion dichotomy or the mind-body dichotomy or the, the soul-brain dichotomy that has been plaguing all of humanity forever. But when you say, well, when I approach things in a rational way, but what does that mean to you to say I approach things in a rational way? Does that mean feeling free, like without emotion? Um, I would say just use, looking at things very objectively, very fundamentally, without um, trying to not let the emotional aspect of, a, let's say, a difficult situation govern anything. Um, okay, so what's, okay, so, so what's, um, what's irrational about the emotions? It seems to me that, and this is just my experience, but when people uh, get emotionally charged, particularly when they're making decisions... Um, I've always had a very good knack for being able to not predict, but um, um, kind of seeing the logical consequences of their, their behavior. And it struck me as it struck me as uh, very wrong-headed, um, if not a little on the stupid side. So I don't like. I don't want to make mistakes. I hate mistakes. I hate inefficiency. Um, 
I guess in a, if you will, I like the mechanical side of things rather than the fuzzy, mucky, dirty, muddy, emotional side of things. All right, all right. Um, well, listen, let me let me give you a little sorry, sure. sorry to interrupt. Sorry, I, I get it, I get it. I mean, but but I, I want to interrupt you because I think that you may be mistaken. You may be fundamentally mistaking two things, which are really, really important. And I'm gonna, I'm going to be annoying lecture head, but I'll keep it brief, okay? But this is really, really important. <laughs> no, let me let me stop by asking you a question though, because I want to make sure that that this is going to be of value to you. So, in the people in your life, we are all surrounded by people who have emotions, right? Right? They they get angry, they get mm -hmm. frustrated, they get upset, they're happy, they're giddy, they're dizzy, they're drunk, they're in love, they're you know, out of love, they're crying, they're right. Now, of these emotions, yeah, sure. Of these emotions, what percentage of the emotions of the people around you do you feel are deep, genuine, heartfelt, and non-manipulative? And by that, I mean non-self-manipulative and non-manipulative towards others. Just genuine, spontaneous uh, expressions of emotion. Okay, uh, you cut out. So, are you referring to me when I express something, or when someone else no, expresses when other, something? When other people express things around you, when other people express things around you, what percentage of the emotions that you experience from those around you do you experience as deep and genuine and spontaneous and not manipulative? What percentage? Um, that's a very interesting question. It's not something I've thought much deeply of. Um, you're, you're basically asking me if uh, what percentage of, do I feel is genuine, honest expression, right? Um, like so, for instance, let me, let me give you an example, right? So when you go to buy a car, okay. the car salesman is very friendly, right? Of course. Right? Is that a deep and genuine expression of emotion? Um, I suppose. I'm a little bit, uh, oh, I'll be honest, on. I'm come a on. little... You, you can't look, 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 you can't, you can't possibly claim to be intelligent and have trouble with that question. If the guy is trying to sell you a car and he's being friendly towards you, is it a deep and genuine expression of his concern and care for you as a human being that he's just met who he wants to sell a car to? No, I don't think so. No. Okay, thank you, thank you. This one was this is this is one hundred and one, right? So this is this is you can get these ones, right? right, right. Okay. Um, if um, uh, if if uh, if someone wants something from you. And they're very nice to you. Is that a deep and genuine expression of concern and care for you as a human being, separate from their needs? No, I don't think so. Right. If somebody feels threatened by something you're saying, and you know this as an anarchist and an atheist, if somebody feels threatened by something that you're saying, they feel emotionally threatened, and they react with anger, is that a deep and genuine emotional experience or are they reacting out of defensiveness? Um, then I would have a hard time distinguishing whether it be defensive or just they were angry. Um, <clears throat> that's, I think, uh, one of the struggles I have as a person. Sorry, let, this... me, let me give you, sorry, I, I have to just stay, in, I don't want to go off on a tangent. 
the way you know right. is if you're if you're saying something that makes them angry that they cannot answer that's defensiveness okay right because if somebody gets angry at a, a position that you're taking that they cannot answer then anger is an inappropriate genuine emotion to have right right, right? And so if i say to you you know what's the square root of 12 billion 600 blah 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 and you don't know, you're not going to get angry, right? No. If I say to you, you know, what's the longest street in... I wouldn't Warsaw? get angry. Yeah, if I say, what's the, what's the longest street in Warsaw? Well, you're not going to get angry, because you, you, you may know. I <laughs> but, but if you don't know, you won't get angry, right? Um, but if I say to you, how can a loving God I drown... How can a loving God drown babies in the crib during the Great Flood, and you get angry, that's a different thing, right? Yes, yes. Okay, so, so when someone gets angry when they don't have an answer to a question, that is not a genuine emotional response. That is them being pissed off that you've called out some bullshit in them. That's irritation. It's not the same as anger. Okay. So I will ask you. This is. These, uh, I'll be honest. Yeah, with, this kind of so, with these rough frameworks in mind, what percentage of the emotions that you experience from those around you do you feel are deep and genuine, spontaneous, non-manipulative, non-defensive emotions? Um, probably twenty, thirty percent on a daily basis. Wow. You must the rest of it is very in, emotionally in, rich people. Work, yeah, go ahead. Well, where I work is a, a very stressful environment. Um, not stressful precisely. It's very busy, very chaotic at times. Um, and we deal with a lot of people who call us and say, you're responsible for this mess, uh, fix this and everything like that. Um, and so... Most of the time, the, the only outlets that I have when I'm at work are uh, when I can joke around with friends and tease each other and mock each other. That seems to be a genuine response where there is no, um, no form of manipulation or anything like that. But aside from that, if my boss approaches me, my first thought is, okay, he wants something from me. He's trying to be friendly, but he wants something from me. And um, right. when, when I was dating, when I have dated it, and whoever it seems to be I'm dating. Um, I see this in relationships, and I find it kind of, this kind of irks me, and maybe I'm reading it wrong, but the relationships that I seem to be involved with, uh, yeah, there's moments where it's just genuine, like, oh, this is really cool, and um, I'm really happy, and um, I, I don't know, um, deep, personal, fundamental, loving type of thing. It seems to be more of a meat market to me because the partner, one partner always seems to demand, the partners always demand things of each other, it seems to me anyways. And if those demands are neat met, then the, um, the relationship is, uh, in my view, done for. Um, it almost seems to me like people will treat each other in relationships as a commodity. 
Mm -hmm. Right. Well, maybe I'm. Maybe I'm. Okay. When it, sorry, <laughs> let me just uh, ask you then. So, when you were growing up uh, with your mother and your father, or whoever was around, did you feel that emotions were generally uh, real, or were they generally manipulative? Uh, that's a tough call. Um, my mom is a highly emotional woman. Um, whether she wouldn't use them to manipulate, and other times it seemed to me that she was trying to be genuine and honest. But um, my dad was a rather staunch uh, skeptic and very much governed his. his um, you never saw much of an emotional response from my dad, really. There's only been a few times where I've actually seen him like, emotional um mama on the other hand has been just um a tornado of um emotional reasoning emotionally charged uh, arguments um to say the least it wasn't exactly a conducive environment for a child to grow up in yeah sorry about that now can you think i think i example? came out somewhat oh, sorry. Oh, sorry can you think of an example where sorry. your mother's sorry. emotionality uh, struck you as as deep and real and genuine and i'll, I'll give you an example because it's it's kind of abstract um, right let me let me sorry to interrupt but let me give you an example of what i mean by that so um a deep and emotional reaction is not something that can be turned off when the phone rings Right. This is this. So, I mean, if you got some terrible news and, you know, like, my, OK, so my mother, she would be like really angry or whatever, and she'd be screaming at the top of her lungs. And then the phone would ring and it would be some trashy asshole that she wanted to have a, an affair with. And she would then immediately switch over to, you know, sugar and spice and all things nice. And she'd be like, hello, it's me. How are you? Right. So she would switch from this, you know, blazing demon from hell to. Uh, you know, Blanche Dubois uh, on a uh, uh, on uppers, and this would happen like instant. So, but but so that's one of the reasons you know that it's not real. Um, uh, unreal emotions change course very quickly depending upon the self-interest of the moment. Real, genuine emotions uh, don't. Right. So she would not take the call um, if she was genuinely upset. Uh, she would either not take the call or she'd take the call and be unable to mask her upset. But when emotions can be masked, when emotions can be changed to pursue or to facilitate the self-interest of the moment, then they're bullshit. They're not emotions. They're manipulations. They're self-indulgences. So with that in mind, and again, these are just my definitions. It could be wrong, but this is the way that I've approached it. Because I grew up with a hysterical mom and I really had to differentiate real emotions from bullshit emotions. Uh, manipulations. I, I don't even call them, I don't even give them the respect of emotions. They're just manipulations. It's just acting. It's just play acting. And people can really believe in their own play acting. Sure, people get Oscars for being good actors, right? But if you think about genuine emotions, emotions that can't be switched on and switched off based upon the self-interest at the moment. So like if someone is intimidating you and then you give them what somebody's angry at you and then you give them what they want and then they're no longer angry at you, then that was a manipulation, right? Right, so that's something that I wanted to uh, to mention. So, so or if somebody is, is, um, <clears throat> is really happy about something and then they don't get what they want and they're immediately unhappy, 
about something, then that's uh, that's a manipulation because the, the, the emotions are just trying to get them what they want and they're just trying to play on other people's pseudo-empathy to, to get them to get what they want. It's not, not real emotions. It's not a genuine uh, emotionality. If it can be turned on, turned off, switched around, changes back and forth, uh, that's all. Just people spinning spider webs in your head. It's all they're basically doing. But um, So that would be my suggestion of ways in which you could differentiate real emotions from manipulations. So thinking about your mom, um, can you think of times, if this is a valid way of looking at it, and just if you could try it for now, I'd appreciate it. So thinking about your mom when you were growing up, can you think of times where there were genuine, deep emotions that didn't change depending on the circumstances? Um, the most recent one that comes to mind, um, and maybe I'm misreading it, so correct me. Uh, when I graduated college, I was 22 and I had um, earned my MBA. And um, my mom seemed really, really happy and very, very, very proud of me uh, because of that. But I can't help but think if given what you've told me from an analysis point of view, if it was just the fact that I just met her expectations and she was happy because of that. Mm. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, this sort of reminds me of um, trying not to confuse our parents, uh, different people, but um, when I was in grade 8, I was taking an adult computer science course, and I wanted to learn how to program games, and I thought that's what it was going to be, but we ended up on these pet computers, and we were learning how to do sequential and non-sequential five-and-a-quarter-inch floppy disk read IOs, uh, which was unbelievably dull for me, so all I did was sit in the back and program games, and um, I kept getting, they kept coming back and saying, hey, you're playing a game. I said, no, I'm programming it. And they're like, no, you're not. Come on. You're 12 or whatever, right? And my mom was so incredibly happy that I was taking an adult computer science course when I was 12 that she would tell everyone, you know, oh, my son, you know, he's taking this advanced computer science studies when, you know, just blowing it way out of proportion. And uh, so anyway, I ended up not getting the credit because I just didn't care about non-sequential discrete IOs on a five and a quarter inch floppy. And eventually I had to tell my mom of this because she kept saying, and then she got really angry. You know, she got really angry. Uh, and now she didn't, of course, say, well, why didn't you like the course? Or what, uh, what was the problem with it? Or, you know, oh, that must have been disappointing. Or maybe show me the game you programmed or something like that, right? It was nothing like that. It's just that I had taken away from her something that she wanted, which was... <laughs> Uh, pride in me doing this computer science course um, when I was 12. Um, and anyway, so that was not, you know, her pride was not real because she didn't have any clue what I was doing. Uh, and her anger was not real either. It had just that now she didn't have something that she could use to puff up her own vanity about her son. Um, so none of those were anything real because it didn't have anything to do with me. It was only to do with her uh, own narcissistic needs. But anyway, I, I, I don't want to sort of confuse the two, but that's what popped into my mind. Right. Um, I don't know. I, I guess she tells me frequently that she's proud of me, that she loves me and everything. I have a hard time believing that that's not true. But um, 
Well, but that's not that's not that hard to uh, right? Sorry, if, if somebody a, says, uh, sorry, if somebody says I love you, right. then it's not hard to figure out whether that's genuine or not. I mean, it's actually very easy, which is why most people don't want to do it because it's too easy. I mean, if you want to find out what, uh, uh, whether someone loves you, all you have to do is ask them questions about you, right? Right. So I say, oh, I love the band Queen, right? And then people will say, well, what are their, what are their biggest hits? And I'm like, uh, I don't know, actually. Um, uh, two out of three ain't bad. Paradise by the dashboard light. Stairway to heaven. I don't know. <laughs> right. Then clearly I don't really love the band, right? If I don't, you know, how many people are in the band? I don't know. The Mormon Tabernacle Choir, three priests and a, <laughs> one of those, uh, baying goats from YouTube. I don't know. Right. Um, uh, you know, whereas, you know, if I say, oh, I'm a huge fan of the band Queen. Hey, do you actually know what Freddie Mercury's original name was? Yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> um, it's, it's, you know, you actually, you, if you know his original Zanzibar name, I can't remember, Farouk Bulsara, I think it was. And, uh, you know, well, what are their greatest hits? Oh, here are their greatest hits. Where did they meet? Oh, they met here in the college and all this kind of, like, whatever it is that, that you would know uh, about the band. So, if, if I say I love something, then I should know something about it. I love philosophy. Oh, who's your favorite philosopher? Uh, Tony the Tiger? Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the elf from the, lepre the leprechaun from the cereal box? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Josh Groban? Right? I mean, if I don't have any clue uh, about what I claim to love, then obviously I don't, right? I don't love it. So if someone says that they love you, then you can just ask them, uh, well, you know, what are my five favorite books? Um, what are my five favorite authors? Um, do I like fiction or nonfiction? What's my favorite music? Uh, what are my values? You know, what would I, what would I really go to the wall for and what am I willing to let go of? Uh, I mean, these are all just questions you can ask someone who claims to love you. And they should be ridiculously easy to answer. I mean, I could sit here and respond to Queen trivia all day because it's embarrassing but true. This is what I stuff my brain with. <laughs> which is the fact that it took three weeks to get the guitar dubs right for Killer Queen. I'm sorry, it's just, I can't find my wallet every other day, but I do know all of this ridiculous nonsense about how Brian May went back to school to finish his PhD thesis um, only a few years ago. Anyway, so, uh, so the, but the point is that if you want to find out if somebody loves you, it's easy. Just ask them a whole bunch of questions about you. And, and this should not be offensive to people who love you, Right? I mean, I mean, of course, I, I mean, there may be things that you miss. There may be things that, that they'd like to know more of about you. But do they spend a lot of time asking you questions about yourself independent of their needs? And do they know a massive amount about you? Some things that you don't even know yourself. When was I the happiest? When was I the most upset? When was I the saddest? What makes me the most angry? What makes me the most happy? Right? These are all things that somebody who loves you should be able to rattle off like nobody's business. Right. And so th these questions, I mean, you just sit down for 20 minutes with someone with a bunch of questions. I mean, geez, we could even come up with them now. It doesn't really matter. They're pretty easy to figure out. You know, what's, what's my biggest blind spot? You know, what's, what are the three most important things that I don't know about myself or that I continually forget about myself that are really important? Um, biggest strengths, biggest weaknesses, right? Uh, what if I work the hardest on to improve? Uh, you know, these, these, these things are just ridiculously, you could just keep asking these questions of people around you. And you'll very quickly find out whether people actually really love you or if they're just saying the words because that's what you're supposed to say and it gets them stuff. Um, and I, you know, I wonder, I genuinely wonder how many relationships would pass this test.
that's um that's interesting that you bring that up um i think i know more about my ex-girlfriends than they ever knew about me but then again i have the i have a very observant um uh, i guess not outlook um i observe people very carefully um and now I think of it, you've given me a, um, a useful tool when I'm, tr I, I have a tendency to introspect and dissect and look back on um, uh, flaws in my life, errors, mistakes, uh, things that have gone wrong. Um, in fact, um, you're probably going to find this somewhat amusing. I thought I could work it out, but I guess I couldn't. Uh, God's too powerful, apparently. Um, I actually dated a Christian girl. Uh, we were both anarchists, and I really thought, uh, I was naive enough to think that I could kind of get her to at least be skeptical on God um, by kind of making lighthearted jokes about religion. Uh, she claimed to be a Christian, but she was a Christian that doesn't a read the Bible be believe in hell and on top of that all other religions will somehow manage to get their followers to the one true God which is the Christian God uh, that was her belief system which I couldn't comprehend for the life of me um, she left a very big hole in me <laughs> uh, and particularly the way she executed that hole was uh, just perfect, I guess. She introduced me to her new boyfriend when we were supposed to go out on a date. <laughs> Why are you um, laughing? Anyways, I'm laughing because it's, I have a, uh, maybe I shouldn't, uh, a side note, I tend to laugh at things that are a little on the dark side. No, very much on the dark side. And I laugh because I can't believe I was uh, that uh Foolish. No, I um, don't. I don't think I have that's a true. To Look, I mean, I, I don't think that's true. I think, I think you laugh because you don't have anyone there to support you in dealing with your pain. Uh, <laughs> wow! Right for the jugular. Uh, I guess that's true, but that's not something I thought of. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, having your heart ripped out—that's that's an incredibly sadistic thing. For someone to do, you're gonna go on a date. She introduces you to her new boyfriend. That's, that's fucking psycho, man. I mean, that's just evil. And if people had been there to really help you, support you uh, in experiencing that kind of pain and processing that kind of pain and helping you to figure out what you missed so it doesn't happen again, then that would not be something to laugh about. But that would be something that you'd be, you know, wiser and deeper uh, and potentially happier as a way of avoiding it. But uh, I, I mean, I, I always hear that when, when people laugh, and, and it's happened a lot of times in the show, when people laugh about awful things that have happened to them, it just tells me that there's nobody there to help support them and, and protect them and work through this, this pain. And I'm really sorry for that, because we, we, do need, um, we do need other people's, you know, we're always looking out from inside. We're always looking out from inside. We can't see ourselves from the outside. And we really need other people's perspective. You know, this Randian superhero 
of perfect integrity is a myth, is a fantasy. It's not something that even Ayn Rand could achieve, and she created these damn characters. And we do need other people's <laughs> and we do need other people's insights. And if you don't have that, I mean, <clears throat> and the other thing I wanted to say is that you know religion doesn't solve the problem of isolation. Right, religion, you say, well, you know, what's the meaning of life? And, and But religion doesn't solve that stuff at all. Like if I said to you, listen, man, I'm really interested in helping the ghost riding on your back get to Narnia. You'd be like, no, man, every time we get together, I'm going to make it my life's mission to get the ghost riding on your back to get straight to Narnia. You'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? I, I mean, what? Like, how has that got anything to do with me? Ghost on my back, get to Narnia. What the hell? What are you talking about? That's, like, that's your own shit. That's your own needs. Nothing. I don't have a ghost on my back, and there's no such thing as Narnia. Right? But the problem is with Christians, fundamentally, if they're following the theology, and this is true of all the religions that I know of, where this is the, you know, the goal is some sort of afterlife or some sort of reincarnated perfection or whatever, so you don't come back as uh, Lindsay, Lohan, Lindsay Lohan's lymph nose or something. Um, so... I mean, the whole purpose is to help shepherd the soul, which doesn't exist, to heaven, which doesn't exist. That doesn't solve the problem of intimacy and getting to know someone. Because you're trying to herd ghosts to paradise. But that's not the same as having a relationship with a person. Because you're having a relationship with metaphors that eclipse the individual. I mean, this is what um, Mother Teresa would say. I think she was in Calcutta. She said... I don't help the poor, I help Christ in the poor. I see Christ in the poor. Well, you know, don't look into my flesh and find, you know, undead Jewish zombie ghosts. Like, that's, not, that's not me. That's, that's your own fantasy, right? That's your own delusions. And we can't ever meet in illusions and delusions. We can only meet in reality, which is who we are as people. Anyway, so, I mean, and the idea, of course, that... Um, that you would make jokes about a deep belief that the woman has uh, is a way of avoiding her as well, right? Uh, because this is something you need to tackle, I think, uh, pretty early on. And of course, because she was not self-expressed, she accumulated all of these barbs and stings that you had towards her and then turned them back on you with full searchlight frontal ferocity by inviting you on a date and introducing you to her new boyfriend. Um, but I'm really sorry that happened to you. Uh, well, and I, I'll, hope that, I'll be... I hope that helps you yeah. take philosophy more seriously, right? Because these are not insignificant differences. Uh, are you familiar with uh, what an ENTJ is? Uh, it's a uh, personality classification, if I remember rightly. Yes. Um, and I've taken several tests, and it seems to pop up that I am one of those types. Um, and in fact, one of my weaknesses is registering people's um, emotional needs uh, or emotions in general. Um, I would like to consider myself very mechanical in thought, and I don't really take into account people's feelings that well because I see um, logic and hard reasoning and facts as more essential and more useful than... Um, um, emotional responses to situations. And I was trying to uh, guide the conversation earlier towards that. Um, what, for example, when I was dating her and I was making these little quips, I wasn't making them directed towards her. 
the clips were usually when I was with a group of friends and maybe she was there and I, it wasn't in any way directed. It was just me cracking a joke. Right. And, um, it was only later that were, well, that it, uh, kind of dawned on me that, uh, she took those very personally, which I didn't really understand or realize at the time. Um, no, no, sorry. I, again, I, I, I have to interrupt you because you're, you're missing, you're missing. So this is, you know, your mechanical smart and unfortunately, because if you had a mom who was hyper emotional and a father who was emotionally shut down, you say your father was rational, but if he was rational, if he was so rational, what the hell was he doing married to a woman who was so emotionally irrational, as, as you say? But anyway, that's neither here nor there. The, um, well, he's not, the issue right. is that, no, the issue is that you can't, um, you can't be direct, right? And, and one of the problems with dealing with emotionally manipulative people is that you can't ever be direct with them. Because everything you say gets twisted and turned and slanted into something else. And this is why you end up with this oblique stuff, like making jokes about core beliefs of a woman you're dating, because you can't be direct. Because if you're direct with emotionally manipulative people, they panic and attack. Because the whole point is it's got to be this hall of mirrors where they just kind of manipulate you into doing what they want. They can't be... Like, people who are emotionally manipulative are manipulative because they can't be direct. They can't just ask for what they want. They drive me nuts. So I, I put this forward with all the prejudice so you're aware of where I'm coming from. But uh, they drive me nuts because it's just, just ask for what you want. Just ask for what you want. And people get mad at me. I say, hey, donate to my show. I'd like to eat, you know. I'd like to have money to expand. I'd like to run. <laughs> you know? And people are like, oh, man, you're constantly begging for money. It's like, no, I'm telling you what I want. I think I'm providing some incredible value. I think I'm providing a unique um, show, a unique uh, broadcast. And, you know, donate if you find it valuable. I'm just asking. I'm telling people, bad, evil if you don't or anything like that. I'm just telling people what I want. And if you grew up with an emotionally distant father and emotionally manipulative mother, and I know I'm reducing it to a stereotype, and I apologize for that, but it means that it's really hard for you to be direct. Because if you are really direct, then you risk volatility. You risk, right? When you're direct with emotionally manipulative people, they, they tend to get very aggressive or shut down, which is really terrifying for a child. And a lot of what you say is about not being direct, right? You analyze, you introspect, you overthink, you, you know, you try and reason things out and so on. Well, that may, I would argue it does, but I don't know for sure. It may come out of just living in an environment where you can't be direct. Well, I've been accused of, I mean, not accused, I don't want to say accused, it sounds bad. Um... My friends and um, my aunt and my grandmother and even my dad have all said that I have a very direct um, uh, when I speak to people I'm very direct. I think though you are correct in the analysis when regarding my my ex um, I was trying to and I know this so myself I was trying to please her with while getting away with the fact that I and to ridicule 
religion. Um, no, I mean, that's, I guess you're right on that context, but on the whole, I've been told that I'm a rather direct person and I make, I have a tendency to make people uncomfortable. Would you be more direct with um, Not because I want to, it's just if I say something that I believe is factually. Um, man, I wouldn't say women are far behind. Well, I hope and in fact, that I, would, sorry, I could I honestly make sure argue that, that I, um, one I'm of my exes I still just, talk to. Sorry to interrupt. I, I've been meaning to uh, make sure that I get to other callers without spending the majority of time on the first caller, though I certainly appreciate this right, great right. conversation. I hope that you've uh, found it to be of some value. Uh, and I really appreciate your openness. I really do. This is hard stuff to talk about. And um, uh, particularly if you have strong cognitive or reasoning abilities, uh, then it's tough to dip into the crazy world of emotions sometimes and feel that they can have any value. But I would argue that emotions, um, I mean, if you want science, right? I mean, the unconscious has about 6,000 times the processing power of the conscious mind, and it's been around a whole lot longer, right? There's a second brain in the gut called the gut, right? We, a gut instinct and so on. It's, it's, not, just a, it's not just made up. There is some significantly uh, scientifically validated um, experiments which show people have incredible intuitions. Uh, but that requires that we have genuine and deep connection with our emotions. It can be, uh, I, I think it is essential in life. Uh, I don't believe in the, uh, in the reason-emotion divide, uh, but I think it's really important to recognize that there are real emotions and then there are bullshit manipulations. And uh, from, from my experience in life, the vast majority, the vast majority of interactions that I've had, and this is outside this show, and this is outside my family, uh, and this is outside, I mean, my current family, and this is outside, you know, I have great conversations with people on these shows, and when I meet people, when I'm at conferences and stuff, great, great interaction. So outside, just among the muggles, right, among the, <laughs> the rank and file, uh, and certainly on the internet, I mean, the vast majority of emotions are simply bullshit manipulations. Uh, they're just pretend emotions. And um, uh, they're just, they're warning shots, they're, they're uh, appeals to sympathy, they're, you know, all this nonsense. Uh, they don't have anything genuine behind them. It's all just smoke and mirrors. And that stuff is really important to understand. Uh, it's really important to be skeptical about emotions, but to be receptive to genuine emotions. Because if you can cut through people's habitual manipulative bullshit, you can usually get to some fantastic and genuine and real place. But... Uh, don't confuse manipulation with emotion, uh, because otherwise you'll lose all respect for your own capacity to reason emotionally. And, you know, when you hear, uh, when you, I mean, you hear this prejudice against emotion all the time. People say, oh, my mother was a highly emotional woman. What, what does that mean? She was dingbat, right? Usually that translates to she was batshit crazy, right? Highly strung, <laughs> highly emotional, highly volatile, highly, you know, people use emotional reasoning. Well, what that means is that they're not reasoning, Right. Uh, this prejudice that we have against emotions is really tragic. And it's one of the ways in which emotional manipulators win, is they get us to be skeptical of all emotions. But reason is not the best way to combat manipulation. Real emotion is the best way to combat manipulation. So if you're trying to figure out if someone loves you, well, that's really hard to do, right? They say it, they provide you, your parents, whatever, they give you food, shelter, they send you to school, come to your graduations, and you know, all that kind of stuff. And cheer and praise. 
but the actual genuine emotional experience of being loved and, and exploring that, uh, that's, that's a whole different thing. So the manipulators make us confuse their manipulations for real emotions. They make us skeptical of real emotions, and that's how they disarm us against further manipulations. Because it is only our deepest emotions that can reveal manipulations. Because our deepest emotions can see very clearly false emotions. Right? Only somebody who really loves art can spot a fake. Right? And only somebody who's got a genuine, deep emotional connection can spot the fake bullshit that most people pawn off as emotions. You know, only the geologist can tell pyrite are fool's gold from real gold, for the most part. So, um, I would really caution you against disrespecting emotions because you've been manipulated or because you've seen hysteria. You know, irritation is not the same as anger. Frustration is not the same as anger. Neediness is not the same as love. Right? Anxiety is not the same as fear. Right? right? So uh, I just would, would really caution you on that. I know this is all pretty useless, but it's just hopefully something conceptually to, to work on um, and recognize that anybody who strips, anybody who gets you to distance yourself from your emotions is doing so because they want to plunder you in my, in my experience. So I just wanted to sort of mention that and point that out. Well, um, you know, thank you, Stefan. Um, it's something I haven't really thought about. I've always been on the reason versus emotion divide. So um, you gave me a lot to uh, chew on. Oh, I'm very, I'm very glad. I'm very glad it helps. And thank you so much for opening up. And do do give me a chance to drop me a line if you can, and let me know um, let me know how it goes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. All right. <clears throat> All right. Next up, we have Sebastian. Um, if uh, we have trouble with his connection, I have the phone number on standby. All right. Hello. Go ahead. Uh, uh, Sebastian, you may want to unmute your microphone. Can you hear us? Um, hi, good morning, everyone. Hello. Can you hear me? Uh, sort of. Okay. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Stefan. Thank you for having me today. My pleasure. Uh, um, I'm 36 years old, registered nurse who has um, recently immigrated from Western Europe to Australia. And I've got three masters from British University. Having watched your analysis about the fall of Australia and the decline and fall of Canada, can you tell me which countries I should emigrate to so I can secure a better and more stable future? Thank you. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I, don't, I don't know. There are, uh, you might want to check out a lady called Macarena Rose. I did an interview with her in Belize when I was there earlier this year. I think that there are expatriation experts that can more closely tailor suggestions to where you are and where you want to be in life because it has a lot to do with, you know, are you going to retire soon? Do you, you know, are your kids young? Are you going to homeschool? Uh, uh, what kind of uh, climates do you like? Do you, you know, summer, winter sports, uh, 
what languages do you speak? So I really would have a tough time tailoring it, but um, you can find some very good uh, expatriation experts who can really step you through that process. But I wouldn't even consider myself close to having a good enough skill set to, to help you out with that. I like Canada in many ways. Um, I like um, I like the lack of an empire is good. I mean, I, the only empire we generally have is the domestic one with the native uh, Canadians. Uh, but um, uh, I, you know, the taxes are very high, but the taxes at least go to healthcare rather than blowing up people for the most part. And I mean, the healthcare is certainly not great, but it's you know, if I had to choose about where my money is spent, I'd rather it be spent on healthcare than bombs. Uh, so um, there's you know, there's something to be said. Uh, for for Canada and um, uh, so and you know if if you get if you structure things right uh, and do it do you know if you can be self-employed there's a lot you can do here to mitigate taxes uh, all fully uh, legal uh, but um, yeah so there's lots of different things that you can do to to try and sort of help make that decision but I don't think I would be very able to give you that good Canada's got an interesting like what I like about Canada too is that it's got a very interesting kind of frontier practicality or pragmatism to it. Uh, Canada's never had a world yep. mission, a sense of manifest destiny like America does. You know, the founding principles of Canada were not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but peace, order, and good government. <laughs> you know, okay, so three things. So does Australia. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, so I mean, yeah. so Canada's got a, a, a kind of a, a very frontier, because it's, it's remained a pretty frontier country in many ways, because you know, 90% of the population is within a few degrees of the American border. And I certainly got that sense mm -hmm. when I was up working up north as a gold panner that the vast majority of Canada is just this <laughs> unbelievable wilderness. But there is a pragmatism and there is a kind of savage pragmatism to Canada, which is um, only belied by its supposed British politeness, you know? Like there's this old joke about Canadians. How do you get 500 Canadians out of a swimming pool? You say, uh, excuse me, could you get out of the swimming pool? <laughs> And out they'll come. But there is a savage pragmatism to Canada so that when government spending got too high in the 90s, I mean, they just cut it. I mean, and they cut it in a way that's like 20, 30 percent of real cuts, as opposed to this, you know, bullshit cuts that America talks about where they, they cut the growth of spending by one or two points and it's, you know, considered to be cutting to the bone or something like that. So, uh, so there is a, um, a real kind of savage pragmatism to Canada that does right the ship of state from time to time. And uh, we actually have some fairly genuine conservatives in power, as opposed to the, you know, I mean, uh, social spending, um, entitlement spending goes up faster under Republicans in the U.S. than under Democrats, right? Because they're not in opposition, right? So we, we don't have the play-acting conservatives. There are some sort of real conservatives who genuinely do try and cut things. Uh, and there is quite a lot of pragmatism to Canada. Uh, it's a resource-rich country, and certainly as the... Chinese and Indian economies, I know that they're faltering at the moment, but as they, as they grow, uh, they will, of course, require huge amounts of resources, and uh, Canada has those. So there's a lot, uh, there's a fair amount to recommend, uh, recommend to it. And um, uh, so, you know, if you don't mind the cold, um, and I, I'm a, you know, I like skiing, uh, and uh, I like winter sports, so uh, it's fine for me. But um, there's a lot to recommend it. But um, I know, of course, you know, emigration is always a pain in the ass, right? I mean, it's really brutal to try and get from one country to another and stay there. So um, I would really recommend, again, the only person I know is the woman I interviewed, Macarena Rose. You can just Google her. And uh, I would have a conversation with her because she's got the real skinny on all of the places that 
you know, these people have researched places all over the world and um, they know really how to fit people in well, I would assume. Uh, she certainly seemed very nice, genuine, and knowledgeable as hell about this kind of stuff. So you might want to check her out. I, I don't recommend because I haven't gone through her services because I haven't changed countries. But um, if I were to say someone, that would be a good person to talk to. Oh, okay. So do you still believe in the fall of Australia and the decline and fall of Canada? Oh, yeah, with no question. This stuff is inevitable. There's going to, <clears throat> I mean, <clears throat> mathematics are inexorable, right? That which mathematically cannot continue will not continue. And, <clears throat> excuse me, so without a doubt, these countries are going to go through some significant changes. Uh, it's, it's, it's inexorable. Uh, the only question is, how is it going to be dealt with? And, I mean, are they going to inflate? Are they going to default? Uh, are they going to cut benefits? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to, to predict. But we have, you know, here's, here's one of the problems with, with the welfare state, one of the many problems with the welfare state. The problem, one of the many problems with the welfare state is that it really slashes and burns our empathy for the less fortunate. Because mm -hmm. to help the less fortunate, you really need to get involved with them as human beings, right? Just paying your taxes and assuming some government agency is taking care of them is a great way to not give a shit about people. And mm -hmm. so what's happened is, I mean, there are people who have genuine misfortunes and genuine bad luck and who make genuinely bad choices, largely as a result of being raised genuinely badly, uh, who deserve a huge amount of sympathy. But the welfare state strips our sympathy because we don't have to get involved. We don't have to care. Because there's a government agency doing it for us, right? I pay my taxes, right? So the poor are taken care of. And we lose contact with the poor. They become the other. They become alien. They become people somewhere else in ghettos. Or, and they become vaguely scary. And we don't have any, any connection with them, right? Welfare is apartheid for the poor. It, it keeps them segregated. It keeps them distant from us. And we don't have to get involved. And then what happens is when the government runs out of money... We don't have the same empathy that we used to have when we had friendly societies, when we had charities, when we had religious and, and other and secular organizations genuinely involved in caring for the poor. And so it becomes a whole lot easier to cut and blame and, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of emotional, mental and to some degree physical segregation, uh, the welfare state. And particularly when you combine that with things like government subsidies, government housing, we herd the poor into these little enclosures and we give them shitty schools and bad services and bad roads and bad policing and all that. And um, we, we lose our empathy for them. They become uh, very foreign, very dissimilar, very other, as they say in the postmodern parlance. And so, you know, my concern is that, and I've talked about this for years, that when, when the crunch comes, uh, the poor are going to suffer the most because we've detached ourselves from any genuine human connection with them through, through the welfare state, which has put us at a bureaucratic arm's length from what is really driving poverty. So I hope that makes some sense. So I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be particularly brutal for the poor. And naturally, of course, libertarians will get blamed for that, I'm sure as well. Okay, thank you for your time. You're very welcome and uh, best of luck uh, pursuing it. Thank you. Bye. All right. <clears throat> Next up, we have Dimitri. Hello. 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 Can you hear me? I can. Excellent. I can't hear myself. Um, all right, so my question today is, I grew up with, well, I'll give you some background and help you understand a little bit better as to where I'm coming from first. Um, I grew up uh, being unschooled in my teen, 
and I'm a polymath right now with multiple degrees and stuff. I mean, I've done quite a lot with my life, but I grew up with very different values because my mother taught me to think critically from a very young age and gave me a, um, well, a, a core belief that's based on a universal truth. The universal truth being that no one knows everything, which means everything that I believe is subject to change based on what evidence I get, be it logical, rational, empirical. Everything else I believe is is changeable, so I don't really fight a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of other things, and, and it makes it really really hard for me to relate to some people. Because I find that a lot of people don't have that as a core belief. They hold really, really tight to what they believe and and simply won't listen when you try to try to explain something to them. You're like, it's really simple to understand, but they just don't get it. Um, so as a result, I mean, recently I just ended a friendship with a, with a guy who was my best friend, I mean, for like 10 years, because it turned out he was just faking things for a long time and he's a, a statist and doesn't really believe in all the crap I believe evidently you know and, and I was just like floored by it because I really I can't tolerate statists and because or, or anyone really who thinks that the abhorrent man of this world is, is somehow virtuous it's just pure corruption people revel in it and think it's like the greatest thing ever and I'm, I'm just like why can't you see how horrible it is um, so, so part of my problem is I'm having a really hard time finding good friends. I mean, so far, I, I have like two people in my life that are awesome. I have my my mother, who who obviously she unschooled me as I was growing up and taught me to think critically. So she's an awesome person. Um, she's more of a friend of mine as opposed to being a mother or anything like that. And then I have my wife, which is like the only person that I know of who who agrees and thinks the way that I think and has the same problems. She's like lost all of her friends and half of her family. And she's just like, why are there idiots? Um, and, and I think the same way because most of the other people I run into, they're just idiots. And it's like, why can't you think? It's really, really simple to understand. What, what do you have such a problem with it? So we've been thinking for a while is where, where could we find friends? You know, and, and friends, local friends, we can hang out, maybe have a barbecue with, and go and do stuff with. Who, who? I don't, I don't know. It, it's kind of frustrating. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, lots of, <laughs> lots of thoughts on it. I mean, you know, first of all, you know, massive kudos to your mom. I mean, <laughs> holy crap. Yeah, she's awesome. She really is. Yeah, I mean, you know, we 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 get our grim tales of bad parenting on this show, but you know, let's let's pause and worship before the altar of the goddess of reason <laughs> that moms can be, right? So I really wanted right. to. My dad was the other side. Oh, what's yeah. what, what, what's wait? What's the story with your dad? Oh, my dad was the other side. He was the abusive person, but uh, as I grew up, I I basically I hated him and everything that he stood for. Vowed never to be like him, and I never have been. So okay. he died so a few sli- years back. Punishing on the goddess of rationality if she was married to an abusive guy. But anyway, it, kind of. she, she did right by you uh, in, in keeping you away from the toxic brain chemical dissolving of the identity known as public schools. Yeah. And, you know, homeschooled and taught you how to reason. So, with the exception of marrying and having kids with an abusive guy, obviously you're happy to be alive. So that's not the end of the world. But. Um, really wanted to point out, like, great, great stuff. And, of course, 
that <clears throat> makes it a whole lot easier for you to meet and marry someone like your wife. So, yay. Well, actually, yeah. <laughs> Good things for, for that. Now, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, so I was uh, with, um, uh, with some friends and we were at a, um, a barn and Isabella was climbing up the bales of hay. And, you know, I, I can't look at a bale of hay without remembering that needle in a haystack thing, you know. And you, you, you look at a bale of hay, you're like, wow, that really would be hard to find a needle in a haystack. And so if you're going to, I mean, that there's, there's lots of different ways you can calibrate this, right? So you can have friends that you like to go and see a movie with, right? Mm-hmm. And you can chat about the movie without getting all philosophical or whatever. And, and it, I don't, you know, not my particular cup of tea, but not, you know, not, not bad or anything like that. Right. I don't know if you're into sports or whatever, right? I mean... No, could, not so much. <laughs> right? No, me neither. But, you know, I mean, if, if you are and you're willing to put aside the military essence of, of sports... But anyway, I mean, so this, you know, maybe you just like to all go horse riding together or maybe the people like go skiing together. So you can have acquaintances. And I say you can have, like, this is somehow my permission. I don't mean that at all. But you know what I mean? I don't think Excellent. Any, I'll take three. Having. Yeah, yeah. So three, three acquaintances to go. Now, the problem is, though, of course, that, that you're, you're limited, right? If you go in, you know you're limited ahead of time, right? Right? I mean, you, and, and you're limited until one of them has a problem, right? So then... You know, someone says, uh, you know, you have these acquaintances and, you know, maybe then one of them, you know, I don't know, has a, a problem. They have, you know, a problem in their marriage or the problem at work or whatever. They start to share their problems and then you're supposed to give feedback if you're a friend or whatever, right? And that becomes progressively more difficult if they're irrational and all that kind of stuff, right? So, exactly. So from that. Absolutely. Yeah, so, so as long as you know that going in, then that's, you know, I think that's, again, there's nothing good or bad except self-deception, right? I mean, fundamentally, when it comes to relationship, the only thing that's bad is avoiding the truth, right? Everything which is conscious, everything which is known, everything which is explored, everything which is understood is the good, right? Which is why I never try to aim at decisions. I only try to aim at enlightenment because with enlightenment comes good decisions. And if you aim at decisions in the absence of enlightenment, you will never get good decisions, at least in my experience. So as long as you're aware and fully conscious of the fact that these relationships are limited, I don't think there's any particular problem uh, with them. And, you know, it's like your neighbors, right? Chat with your neighbors over the backyard fence. Uh, you're all living in close proximity, but, you know, you're probably not doing group hubs in the basement or whatever, right? So, <laughs> right, right. So I think to, to have that is, is fine. Uh, you know, again, as long as you're aware and, and steer clear of any of the dangerous depths which are going to expose the limitations of the relationship. I think that's fine. But I do think that if you are looking for a needle in a haystack, the one thing you really need is a magnet. And okay. right, yeah. so if you're looking for somebody who's deeper, you're not looking for agreement. Obviously, you know this because you know how to think rationally. You're not right. looking for agreement in content. You're looking for agreement in methodology. If you look for agreement in content, then what you're looking for is... Well, that's just the verbal wind. masturbation, basically. I mean, yeah. If, I mean, you're, so, if you're just looking for somebody who just agrees with you all the, all the time, that's just a yes, man. And that's really not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for other people who have like the same caliber of being able to hold a rational conversation, so that we can actually discuss things that, you know, like if I were to, to sit down and have dinner with you and your family, and it would be me and my wife, we we would have a wonderful conversation. I mean, in my in my mind, because we could all think on the same kind of level and talk and not really 
we could debate things without having to, you know, get all pissed off because, you know, I'm saying something that you don't agree with, you know. Right, right, because we would have a methodology, right? And this is the key. Looking for somebody who, you know, oh, people say, you know, I want to find an atheist anarchist who's into self-knowledge and has gone through therapy. It's like, no, you don't. You don't want to find, because that's <laughs> like saying, uh, I want the wind to blow a hole in a sail that's my exact outline. Well, good luck. That's never going to happen, right? <laughs> right. I mean, but, but what you want is somebody who is... Right, you you don't want somebody who's got the same destination necessarily, but you want to have somebody who's got the same transportation. Right, so if you want to fly somewhere, there's no point trying to hook up with someone who's going to hitchhike, because you don't have the same transportation. Right, you may right. you may say, hey, well, maybe we'll meet in Vegas when you get there in three weeks or whatever, but I'm going to fly there and be there in two hours. Right, mm -hmm. and. The transportation is the essence, right? And, and what I mean by that, of course, is the methodology, right? It's not, you, you don't want an atheist. You don't want an anarchist. You don't want somebody who's, you know, all kinds of fired up and committed to self. -knowledge. What you want is somebody who's able to think. Because people who are able to think will generally arrive at similar values, right? Like scientists generally arrive at similar conclusions when they're not completely warped by state funding or whatever. Right. And mathematicians in the same way as well will generally arrive at similar if not the same conclusions because they have the same methodology so what you're looking for is not does somebody have the same conclusions that i have but does somebody have the capacity to experience doubt without self-collapse right does somebody have the ability to entertain opposing thoughts without aggression does somebody have the ability to recognize that being offended is a very poor substitute for being right mm -hmm. uh, and and so uh, is, is somebody able to process information and is not wedded to conclusions people are so the mystery like why are people so wedded to conclusions that's not that hard it's hard emotionally to figure out but intellectually we, we know pretty much people are wedded to conclusions because they're punished for not having those conclusions you know why right why? i mean they grew up thinking that you know if they're wrong they're going to be punished in some way or another or ostracized or whatever so yeah, they yeah. hold on to what they believe very, very strongly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like you, you, you watch someone standing in the park um, in some bizarre shape. They're sort of in some mid-Tai Chi pose. You don't know why, and then you realize, you know, they've got a laser on their forehead. It's like, oh, that's why they're doing that, right? Because they, they don't want to get shot. They're obviously obeying some guy's orders, right? That's why they look so weird, right? So we're growing up, and it's like, well, no, you have to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you have to fold the flag this particular way and you have to say that the military are heroes and you have to say that your teacher is good and you have to say that public school is right and you have to say your country is the best and your culture is the best because if you don't you'll get punished and this is why people just get addicted to these conclusions it's just a form of stockholm syndrome it's just a form of of um uh, of uh, fear paralysis uh, because they're attacked and punished and ostracized and bullied and mocked and excluded and you know for not you know like like you know, I mean, the, the guy who just rolls his eyes when the football team comes out, it's like, you know, is, is the guy who everyone's like, oh, he's weird. You know, why isn't he cheering when the football team comes out? It's like, because I'm not a fucking ape. That's why. Excuse right. me for evolving slightly beyond our common chimpanzee <laughs> cousins. Uh, but uh, I'm not an ape who's going to worship physical size and strength um, because I'm not... Uh, <laughs> I'm not primitive that way. Uh, I've gone a little bit beyond the Stone Age, and we're looking for something a little bit more refined than 
um, testosterone-laced, steroid-infueled muscles. Anyway, right. so but but of course, so people are just punished for not conforming to the collection of wild prejudices called culture, and so then they're afraid to think because thinking is going to detach them from those conclusions and thus invite attack. And, uh, you know, the viciousness of culture, you know, like, so, so somebody was emailing me this long email about, and every time I mention Native Americans, I get the same thing on Native Canadians, where the natives were gentle and wonderful with their children, and they were very peaceful, and they were, you know, they didn't attack them, and they didn't lecture them, and they didn't punish them, and I just know that's not true. How do I know that's not true? Because in a, a free society, culture changes all the time, and right. technology progresses all the time. And when people can think for themselves, they tend not to do exactly what their parents did. Of course not. Of course not. I sure as hell hope that my daughter doesn't do exactly the same same things that I'm doing. That would be tragic. Oh, I know, and right? So the fact that they're, yeah, the fact that their culture stagnated for thousands of years is a direct measure of the brutality and, and viciousness that the parents had towards their children. You know, why are they all doing the same stupid rain dance that doesn't work? Well, because they're punished if they don't. I mean, so people tell me all these facts and, yeah, I mean, oh. And, yeah. Oh, I mean, a good, just, a good I mean, example. Uh, hang on just a Go moment. A, a really good example of what you're actually talking about right now is uh, a conversation my wife and I had recently. Is she was telling me about when she was young, maybe like eight or nine years old, she was talking to her mom and thought she would give her mom a really good compliment, right? And so she tells her mom, you know, when I get older, I'm going to do my best not to make any of the mistakes that you've made. And of course, she thought she was giving her mom a really good compliment. Her mom got all sorts of upset, you know, it turned out to be a tragic thing in her life. And I said, well, that's interesting because I had the same kind of conversation with my mom. And my mom was like, oh, thank goodness. I, I, I don't want you to make any of the mistakes I made. And if you can just jump over those and just make your own mistakes and learn from those, you'll be much better off. You know what I mean, and it's just like worlds of difference, you know, and. Now my wife like loves my mom and she's like, why is my family stupid? But yeah, I mean, that's an example of what you were talking about there. Yeah, so I mean, so when it comes to having the magnet to find the needle in the haystack, um, if you don't want an acquaintance, but you want more close friends, then I think the best thing to do is to put your beliefs out there on the internet and find people who respond geographically. No, that would be a good idea, I suppose. I mean, I have acquaintances. I mean, I make friends at the drop of a hat. super easy for me. Um, mainly because the key to getting respect is giving it, and I give everyone respect to begin with. And that's just mm. the way that I was raised. You and so, <laughs> Yeah, right? Uh, but, <laughs> you slut! But, you uh, give everyone respect to begin with. Come on. Well, Doesn't well, it I have do. to be earned a little bit? Well, no. You see, I have this uh, thing where I start off and I give them a little bit of trust and a little bit of respect, and I see what they do with it. And there's okay, three so, things, yeah, there's three bit, things yeah, I do with it. I mean, if they take it and throw it on the ground, spit on it, whatever, well, if they just trash the only respect that I was going to give them. So they don't get any more, and now they don't even have that that I gave them to begin with. If right. they take it, tuck it into their pocket, hang on to it for later, well, they get that amount of trust and respect, and it never grows. But if they add a little bit to it, polish it up some, and hand it back, well, then that's trust that goes back and forth and builds over time. But you have okay. to start with that small trinket. And when I meet somebody from the beginning, I, I give that and I, I see what happens. And a lot of times, it's really amazing. You give the respect first and people will respond by giving it back. It, it, it happens more often than not. The problem is, is that most people are trying to demand it instead of commanding it. Well, no, see, but hang on. See, you're contradicting yourself a little bit. I, I, I'm sensing Dale Carnegie's ghost swirling around this conversation, right? Because he's saying, why are most people idiots? But I do give people respect. Well, no, I mean, but my 
assertion of most people being idiots is basically seeing what they do with it afterward um, and, and what they say afterward or when uh, I argue with people, not argue in, in the term of like yelling and fighting, but argue in the term of like debate mm. uh, w- with other people. And I'll say something. It's like they either they didn't hear what I said or they didn't think about what I said or they'll just repeat the same mantras back and you know, the, the same things back to me. And I was like, I, I've already addressed that. Um, and, and you seem to not listen to it. And um, that's what I mean by people are stupid and people are just being idiots. Is is they're just like mental zombies that just parrot these things back that they've learned, whether it be they've learned it in church or they've learned it in school or or wherever it is that they've they've learned some of the stuff that they just say over and over again. Right. Um, but so what I'm looking for is I make I make friends easily. I have lots of acquaintances and stuff. But what I'm looking for is how to find those those. Like the magnet you're talking about, right? And I mean, yeah. how to find a few, just a few people who I wouldn't mind hanging out with a whole lot more. I mean, my wife and I, we go, uh, we go camping. We're, we're hanging camping, which is basically we, uh, we do hammock camping. And so we go out into the, into the forests here in the northwest of the U.S., which is, you know, absolutely beautiful. We camp with hammocks and we have a bunch of friends that we do that with. And sometimes there's a good conversation that happens. Most of the time it goes weird. But, um, but yeah, so I'm trying to, trying to like, toss that magnet out to find those few things. And, and I think the Internet is really good. I mean, I found a couple of people to talk to on the on the internet, but it's kind of like one person's in Australia, another one's in the Netherlands. Um, you know, which is great, but it doesn't really make for like you know, hey, how about uh, coming over for a barbecue this weekend or something? You know. Yeah, but I mean, I would focus on and that uh, there are websites that can help pinpoint you geographically and so on, and just put in your sort of rough neighborhood. And I would you know start a group and say, look, I. I want to find like-minded people who are interested in talking about, you know, real things in, in a real context. And I'm in this area and, you know, just, um, you know, find some neutral place where you can meet, uh, you know, can I throw barbecues at a public park or something like that, uh, or someplace where people can meet and just invite. And then, you know, just, just make it a, make it a project, which is, you know, I'm going to find some friends. It's like finding a job. I mean, you, you know things that you got to do, and, and the internet has made it really quite amazing to get meetup groups going in geographical areas, uh, and I would really focus on that. I mean, certainly you can't wait for people to fall in your lap. You can't wait to right. meet people um, just randomly, right? I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're looking to, to fill a position called close friend, then you're basically looking for somebody with two PhDs in disparate fields, you know, molecular biology <laughs> and art history. You know, right. well, you don't just wander around, you know, saying, hey, I just met a guy at the coffee shop. I wonder if he has degrees in molecular biology and art history. Right. If you're looking for something really specialized, then you have to cast your net as wide as possible. And you have to openly state what you want and what you need, what you have to offer, and then just wait for the, quote, applicants to to pour in. But if you're looking for things really specialized, cast the net wide, make it geographically specific and be open, uh, very open and clear about what your needs are. And then, you know, prepare for the inevitable disappointment when somebody says, oh, I only have a master's in molecular biology. Get out of here, you punk. Uh, or whatever it is, right? <laughs> but but um, uh, I would say use use the web, work the web to, to find geographical uh, similarities. Because, you know, I mean, there could be a guy four doors over who's in exactly the same boat who could be a great friend. Uh, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, you're just not going to know. Uh, putting yourself out personally face-to-face to me is, is a bit random. Uh, and given the rarity of what you're looking for, 
probably is not going to be that great or useful an approach. So um, that would be my suggestion. Hasn't turned out to be the best approach so far. That's why I figured I'd call in and ask. Meetups.com is, is, is a good place. This is somebody who's mentioned. Uh, Meetups.com yeah, is a great actually just thank them there in the, uh, I just thanked them there in the chat room. There. I noticed they, uh, they mentioned that. I'm going to go and have a look at that a little bit later on. Okay. Yeah, I hope that helps. And, of course, if you do find a group that you like, uh, please feel free to come to the Freedom Aid Radio Message Board and uh, talk to people who um, may also be uh, around as well. I mean, we've got... I don't know, not, you know, it's not obviously that many active members, but it's like 10 or 11,000 people who've signed up and uh, I'm sure they would like to, there must be at least a few who'd be around um, uh, from a, a geographical standpoint. And so, you know, you can work that resource as well. Yeah, this sounds absolutely great. Um, thanks a lot for your help and uh, your uh, chemo and everything like that. And I hope that continues along that same uh, positive path for you, your family. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Have yourself a, a, a good time finding your friends. And if you find some, please feel free to share the goodies with others. And um, uh, I hope it works out. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. You too. All right. Uh, next up today, we have Seth. Hello. Hello. I love all these non-WASP names. It's good. I feel like we're really dipping into the cultural mosaic. Hello, Seth. How are you? Pretty good. Yourself? I'm well, thank you. You're welcome. Um, all right. Um, I, I I have to apologize in advance. Um, I, I know a lot of the fans are, uh, don't like um, dream calls, I guess. Um, so, uh, I mean, if you don't want to do this, that's fine. Um, no, the problem with the dream calls is that I end up doing um, Stephen Tyler's shriek uh, from the end of Dream On. Uh, and uh, that's hard <laughs> on people's ears. And it's also hard on my voice. Uh, so I won't do that right now, uh, but it's going off in my head. Uh, for those who are not into their seventies rock, uh, this will make no sense. But no, I'm I'm fine with them, and it's been a while. So dream on! Ah, I knew I shouldn't have tried. I knew I shouldn't have tried. Anyway, go ahead. All right. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I've been having like this uh, barrage of like really off the wall dreams as of late and I, I, I'm not necessarily good at analyzing them but I'm, most of the time I just take them for face value um, however uh, this recent one um, the one I could remember anyways uh, I, I wrote down and, and it felt pretty significant to me um, but I, I, I don't know where to go from you know where to go from here so I, I figured I, I'd throw it by you so is that alright with you? Yeah please alright um Throughout, uh, I wrote this down, sorry. Uh, throughout the whole dream, I had a nagging feeling that I was missing, uh, forgotten, or had lost something. Um, I had borrowed a kid's tricycle from my Uncle Cody. The bike was just big enough for me to ride. I had to go and get something from somewhere, but I don't remember what or where. I rode on a sidewalk along a neat, well-kept road. It was a residential area of upper middle class, complete with white sorry, picket. how old were you uh, when you were doing this? Um, I, in, in my dream, yeah. um, I would probably say just like a couple of years younger than I am now, like maybe two or three years. Okay. So it's not like you were dreaming you were a kid. No, no, no. I, 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 I should say like, uh, cause I'm 23 now. So I would say like, you know, early twenties and so yeah, the, the kid's bike would be very out of place and it felt very out of place to me. Got it. Okay. Um, 
So it was a residential area of upper middle class, complete with white picket fences, trees, beautiful gardens, and all that. I don't remember getting to the place I needed to go, nor do I remember getting to whatever uh, it was that I needed. The dream just segued right into my way back home. The tricycle was now a kid's bike. Uh, I wrote that down wrong. Um, the bike was now a tricycle, um, which I was getting... The bike was a tricycle before, right? No, the did I say it was a tricycle? Yeah, I did. Okay, yes, I did thought a kid's tricycle. I thought I had done a typo there. I'm I'm sorry. Um, which, as I was riding it, I was getting sleepier and sleepier. As I fell asleep, it transformed into a massive jeep, like a oversized uh, Jeep Grand Cherokee. As I fell asleep at the wheel, I slept, drove home, which, in the process, I took a, a wrong turn and ended up at a railroad crossing. I kind of knew whereabouts I was as the same railroad crossed the road I lived on. I woke up as I was pulling up to the tracks and had trouble stopping the truck. The brake pedal was real stiff, and I had to use both feet just to slow the truck down, and even then I still couldn't stop completely. I pulled up next to a motorcyclist from behind. He glared at me irritably once he realized I couldn't stop completely, and that I had just woken up from falling asleep at the wheel. A train was coming, so he and another... a cyclist pulled off onto a side road. A moment later, I decided to do the same and did a U-turn onto a parallel road to the right. I wrecked a little bit in the process as the Jeep was turning into an infant's toy bike that had like like, trains and stuffed animals on the front. Some of the kid's stuff and, and a wheel fell off, but I hadn't realized it yet. The kid's bike was turning into a mountain bike as I was retracing my way back to the correct path home. I ended up following a van on my mountain bike and was a bit confused as we pulled through someone's yard. We went through an archway made of vines and I realized that there was a little road just just bisecting this yard. It was gorgeous, full of colorful plants on both sides. The road was made of these flat PVC vinyl two-inch wide crisscrossing fencing slats with grass growing up in the squares between them. We pulled onto the road I was supposed to be on, and the van disappeared. I went down the road on my bike until the chain fell off, so I got off and started putting it back on. I was confused because the chain was weird. It had a hook that went into the gears instead of the way they normally go on. An an eight-year-old-ish black kid came out of the house that I had stopped next to, along with his much younger sister. He asked me what I was doing, and after I told him, he started describing how he did horrible things for his parents. But then he was, but that he was a nice person, just quote unquote gangster, and how he wanted to be friendly and be nice to people. He was nice enough that I didn't want to blow him off, but the stuff he was describing was fairly off-putting. Eventually, he got bored and went back in his what house. Describing, um, uh, basically just like stuff like um, running drugs and you know watching his parents kill people, and yeah, it was kind of weird. It felt very out of place. Um. Eventually, he got bored and went back in his house, and I finished fixing my bike chain. The dream segued again to where I had gone back for the wheel and stuff that fell off the bike. There was a couple of stuffed animals from the kitty toy bike thing soaking up pond water. I picked up something like a toy train or car or something that was fairly important to the original owner. The dream then segued back to my home uh, where I was in a room I've never had, but I knew it was my room. My uncle Cody and my friend Chrissy were sitting on my bed and making idle chat when Cody mentioned something about Maynard James Keenan. And I enthusiastically asked if he heard... Maynard James Keenan? Yeah. Maynard Keynes? 
No, Maynard James Keenan, the um, the lead singer of Tool, uh, Perfect Circle, Pucifer. <laughs> okay, it's like, it's like music from the guy I'm thinking. Okay, yeah, <laughs> music reference. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, and I enthusiastic. Was he into stimulus spending as well? This lead singer, lead sing- No, just kidding. <laughs> I think more was like uh, stimulus drugs. <laughs> right, right. Okay, <laughs> less harmful in general. Okay, got it. Yeah, um, and I enthusiastically asked if he had heard new stuff he's done with his side projects while digging into my CD collection. Cody asked if I had something from the kitty bike, and I remarked that I had it and even cleaned it and was looking for it while looking for my Tool CDs. Cody then said to Chrissy that, no, he's never heard anything commercial from Tool. And I replied, I never said anything about commercial, but I asked if he had heard any of the new stuff. Cody started getting snarky and mouthy, which is when I realized I was dreaming about Cody got pissed off and woke myself up. And is this a repetitive dream? Um, no. Um, this uh, this is this was a one-time thing. Um, so I can't really say it's repetitive. All right. Can you just um, um, put it into Skype, or you can whisper it to me in the chat? You've got it typed out, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And just let me so I can reference it because I was writing stuff down, but there was a lot. Yeah, sorry. There you go. Uh, I think I got all of it. Yeah, that looks like it. Oh, wait, hold on. There was a typing error. I accidentally drag and drop something. Uh, okay, that's, no, never mind. All right, sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously the most striking thing here is the black kid, right? Uh, yeah. All right. Now, are you black? No, no, I'm, 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 I'm a redhead, so. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I don't <laughs> want to judge based on stereotypes like accent, but you didn't sound particularly brotherly. Um, okay, so, um, did you have black friends when you were a kid? Um, not until high school. Okay, so this would be much earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, does this black kid, did he remind you of anyone that you knew when you were younger? Um, not that I can think of, no. Although, actually, now that I think about it, I mean, maybe this is just like, you know, a, a, um, you know, just a, a random association I made. But uh, maybe um, he, he did kind of remind me of the kids of neighbors I used to have um, in the last place I lived. And we had these downstairs neighbors and the parents were total scumbags. Um so that that might be the association there. Okay, so tell me a bit more about these neighbors. And no names or geography. I just want to just get a sense of the family that you, well, you well, remember. Well, fortunately, I didn't know their names. <laughs> but uh, I like I remember like um, like I'd wake up at four a.m. and like I'd hear uh, the 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 chick's boyfriend like either beating on her or um, her kids or something or arguing and. You know, all that. And then, um, you know, like I would, you know, come downstairs because my apartment was upstairs. Um, I would come downstairs and there would be like a freshly stolen bike, like spray painted and everything. There was like a different bike on the on the on the porch like every other week um, and, and just you stuff. The, you, wait, wait. So you get the bike reference here, right? Because your dream has nothing but bikes in it, right? Yeah. Well, my my buddy, John. Um, he said that uh, maybe it, it, it's more indicative of uh, maybe like a progression of time or representative of a progression of time, which seems to make more sense to me. Um, yeah, but progression of time, I mean, 
dreams no, don't need to tell us that time passes. Dreams need to tell us stuff that we don't know consciously, but which is essential to us, right? You okay. don't need a dream to say to you, hey, you know what? Time passes. At one point, you were younger, and now you're older. At one okay. point, you had smaller bikes, and now you have bigger bikes, right? I mean, you don't, you don't usually dream that it's raining because we know that it rains, right? Unless it's okay. significant in some way. So but the first thing, I mean, the first thing you mentioned, of course, was the criminality, right? Which was the beating on the kids and the beating on... And was it, were they married? This, this, were they boyfriend, girlfriend? No, no, no. It was, it was, um, it was boyfriend, girlfriend, and I think she had like two or three boyfriends in the in the year and a half I lived there. So, right. Now you know that's. I mean, this is terrible for children, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I think I think that the highest multiplier of the risk for child abuse is a single mom with multiple boyfriends, like a single mom with a non biological father. Sorry, with a man who's not the biological father, a single mom with a man who's not the biological father of her children where he's cohabiting raises the risk of child abuse by what ratio do you think? Um, I, I actually remember reading something on this. I can't remember what exactly it was, but I think it was like something around in the 40 percentile range. No, it's 33 times. Oh, wow. Yeah, 3,300 percent. Wow. Right, so 33 times. I mean, just being a single mom raises the chance of child abuse 13 times. 13 times. Not 13%, 13 multiples. Mm. And having a non-biological, non-biologically related man in the house is 33 times higher child abuse risk. Um, This is why the nuclear family is kind of important. It's the thing that protects children the most, biological mom and dad together is the greatest chance for children to... And these are just statistics. It doesn't tell you anything in particular about any individual um, case, but it certainly does tell you the general patterns are brutal on children Mm. for family dissolution. This is why anything which dissolves the family when children are young is, um, is incredibly destructive as a whole for children. I mean, 13 times just for single parents and 33 times for this situation that you're describing. And that's with one single biological, not non-biological, really non-biologically related father, but the series of them, I'm sure it's much higher. I mean, this would be just brutal. So the bikes that showed up in the front yard or the backyard, they were stolen by the children. Is that right? Stolen by, by the parents, actually. Stolen by the parents. So the yeah. parents were basically stealing bikes and repainting them and then they would sell them? Give them to the kids, usually. Ah, Okay. And there was, you said there were two or three children? Yeah, yeah. It was um, a little boy. He was about the same age, about eight. Um, and then I remember a daughter. Uh, yeah, a daughter. Um, who's, uh, I wouldn't say the same age, but just like a couple years younger than him. Probably like six or seven. And what's your memory of these children? Um, well, I didn't... He, really like the kids themselves but i mean i couldn't really hate them because you know they were just uh victims of their parents so to speak um but like the uh the uh the daughter like had a a bad habit of going out into the backyard and actually just pooping in the backyard for no reason um we actually had a couple of mean for no reason like, I would ask, like, you know, like, one time I, I, I caught her, and she's like, I'm like, you know, when you want some privacy, like, don't you want to use your bathroom? And she's like, no, I'm just doing it. I'm just, just 
<laughs> yes, but you understand that's not no reason. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, okay. this is a this is a completely brutalized childhood, right? And this is yeah. This is basically shitting in the yard so that people will try and save her, right? Okay. She's saying that this is the level of dysfunction that I'm experiencing. Mm. Like I'm being shit on by my parents. I'm going to shit on the yard so people can see and and do something. Okay. It's not no reason, right? Hmm. All right. Sorry, I was thinking about that for a moment. Um, no, no. Take your time. <laughs> so show where we try to think about things. So those poises are totally fine. Um, um, okay. So sorry. Go ahead. Now, what's this? A relatively because in the dream you're going through some pretty nice neighborhoods. Uh, what's yeah. the neighborhood? The real neighborhood that you were living in with these basement dwellers. Um, it was. It was actually a, a pretty beat up neighborhood. Um, it was just like a couple blocks away from like a. Uh, basically like a big gang area in the neighborhood I live in, um, like lots of shootings and, and drug busts and all that. Um, there was a high school, you know, a couple of blocks down too. Um, but the, the neighborhood was, was basically like lower, lower, lower class, <laughs> you know, it wasn't a good neighborhood at all. Am I right in guessing that these children did not receive a ton of support from the adults in the neighborhood? Um, no, uh, I mean, they would just pretty much roam free around the neighborhood and people would just ignore them. Right. And what do you think of that? Um, I don't know. Like, I, I kind of, like, have, like, a um, like kind of a disconnect on that one. Like, uh, on one hand, like, I can understand why people don't want to um, associate with the kids because the, the kids themselves were, were you know, very irritating to, to deal with and frustrating to be around. Um but on the other hand, like I don't see why people weren't empathetic enough to to at least you know try to reach out and and do something for them. Well, there's the six million social agencies that would go and help these children, right? Mm -hmm. I, I know that they're government and blah 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 blah, right? But this is within the paradigm of people who are statists, right? So yeah. In this neighborhood, one call to child protection services would have gotten a huge amount of resources towards these kids, right? I suppose I never thought of that before, actually. Well. It's not, I mean, you understand why that's an important question, right? Yeah, absolutely. Why? Well, because uh, these kids need those resources. So, you know, and, and you know, people who, as you said, are, are obviously statist, uh, they would think of calling a CPS or some charity or something. Um, yeah, you know, children in foster care have only 10 times the risk of being abused. Mm -hmm. right? So it's going down from 30 to 40 times to 10 times yeah. the risk of being abused. Now, these are all government numbers, so I, you know, I, I put them forward with all due, blah, blah, blah. Right? But mm. looking from the standpoint of people who are statists, right, there are endless agencies to deal with these uh, situations wherein the statistics would be that the children would have a much better outcome than staying in this kind of environment where they're being exposed to uh, thieving and violence, brutality, emotional abuse, God knows what other kind of abuse is going on uh, in that situation where you have six-year-old kids shitting in the yard that is uh, indicative of some unbelievable levels of abuse, like, like fucking third world, ninth layer of hell levels of abuse. Okay. And the cry for help that the children are putting out there is being uniformly ignored in mm. the neighborhood, right? Yeah. 
and I'm just and and by you. And I'm look. I mean, you were obviously how old were you at this time? About twenty-two. Yeah. When you knew these kids? Yeah, it was just like a, so a year or so ago. You, why didn't you act? Um, please understand, I'm not. I'm not trying to put you on the spot, and I'm not trying to say you know, ooh, bad, right? I'm genuinely curious why why you didn't act. Two main, two reasons mainly. Um, for for one, like uh, I didn't want to make anything worse for the kids. Um, I mean, uh, I wouldn't say I've had personal experience with CPS, but I have had friends who've you know been through the CPS system and they they basically were, were horribly abused and I didn't want to like, you know, risk uh, putting, you know, these kids through through more abuse, uh, so to speak. Um, but on the, uh, on the other hand, like, I, I suppose I didn't really know what to do in the first place. Like, you I, would, I mean, if you had concerns about uh, CPS, you would, you would do some research, right? Yeah. Um, and again, I'm just, I'm, I'm not trying to pick on you. I'm just sort of pointing out, like, you would you would look up and say, okay, well, what happens with kids in the CPS system and how does it work and, and all that kind of stuff, right? Mm. And it's hard to imagine how it could be worse than them shitting in their own yard, right? True. And again, I, I know I'm going to get lots of emails from people who are like, oh, CPS is terrible and this. And I, I understand <laughs> all of that. I understand all of that. And I'm just asking the questions, right? I mean, there may be fantastic reasons as to why these kids remain in this unbelievable fucking dungeon, Right. Maybe mm. there's really great reasons, and maybe this is the very best our goddamn society can do, <laughs> is to leave these kids in this wreck, right, of a, of a situation. But the question is interesting to me, more than interesting. It's fascinating why nobody in the neighborhood acts when they see this occurring. Mm. So your concern was that they may end up in some worse situation. Worst situation or that CPS won't do anything and the parents they are with will end up escalating because someone called CPS on them. Now, um, in terms of um, giving the kids a little bit of support yourself, Mm -hmm. you know, being a bit friendly, providing them some alternative, I'm not saying obviously you become sort of caseworker, but providing some sort of alternative view of what it's like to be around other human beings. Um, because, right, the kids are, are, from the kids' perspective, they're being horribly abused in full view of everyone. Yeah. And nobody's doing anything. I mean, what relationship do you think that's going to give them to the society that they live in? Mm, I would guess fairly, um, I want to say apathetic, but fairly hostile towards Oh, pe- vicious. Yeah. I mean, vicious, because they will grow up, I mean, I can almost guarantee you, right, I mean, that they're going to grow up with a completely feral relationship with society. Like, fuck mm. y'all. Yeah. Like, fuck y'all, I owe you nothing. I owe you no allegiance, I owe you no respect for property rights, I owe you no respect for personhood. Actually, because, it's it's funny you say that, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's funny you said that, because there, there were uh, several occasions where the, the little girl actually would uh, come into our apartment, like she would like if we left the door unlocked at all um she would just walk right the fuck in um so yeah i can i can definitely see that you know uh, manifesting already oh yeah look i mean i mean when i was uh, in my early teens i i just shoplifted because it's like i mean fuck society did nothing to protect me Mm. 
So why, why, I mean, what the fuck should I care about other people's property rights? I mean, nobody gave a shit about me being horribly abused in full view of everyone around me. So don't give me this bullshit about how I've got to be, do right by society. I mean, first, society should do right by me. And uh, it's earned, right? The social mm. contract is earned. And this is something that uh, the kids will grow up and, and just, I mean, there's no relationship to to society that is anything other than predatory. I mean, that's the vast likelihood, right? Yeah. And the idea that, you know, the, all, all the social services are just going to do horrible things to the kids no matter what um, is not, it's not, it's not, it's not borne out by the data that I've seen. And I think it's just a way that people just say to, say, people say to themselves because they don't want to get involved. Mm. Because, because if you, if you attempt to protect the children of abusive parents, those abusive parents will, may, may turn on you, right? Even if it's anonymous, even if it's whatever, right? Yeah. It's, it's uncomfortable. And so we'd, we'd rather end up with like criminals than, than put ourselves through the discomfort of standing up for children. Mm. So, and what do you what do you think of? I mean, all the other adults. Did this, was this was this ever talked about in the neighborhood, or was it like you just nobody talked about it? Um, my roommate and I talked about it a lot, um, but beyond that, I wouldn't know. Um, I wasn't that close with any of my neighbors for the most part. What about uh, your parents? My parents. Um, my dad's in Utah. My mom's in. Virginia, I think so. <laughs> I don't really talk you to them talk much. About the situation with them? Uh, no. Why not? I don't really speak to my parents. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. Oh, it's 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 fine. Um, I'll talk to my mother once in a while, but my dad, I I absolutely refuse to speak to him. <laughs> and with, with you, when you talk about this with your uh, parents, sorry, my apologies. When you talk about this with your friends, um. Was it pretty much what you and I like? This is terrible, but you know we don't want to get any agencies involved because it's just going to get worse. Um, no, I don't remember anything like that. Um, I mean, I remember like we because uh, I I was I wouldn't say I was just getting into Freedom Main Radio or anything like that, but I, I was you know like a couple months into it by by time I, I moved into this place. Um, and so like you know we back then we would talk about like you know how. Um, abuse affects the children, you know, like what behaviors would be reflective of what types of behaviors their parents exhibit, things like that. More just like a, from an analytical standpoint, I would say. Right. 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 Okay. And what does it, um, what does it do for you that this is a society that you live in where, um, that this happens to these kids, right? Well, and and nobody does anything. For me, it's it's it's. I wouldn't say fairly. I would say it's extremely frustrating for me. Um, I mean, like I'll even try to talk about this kind of stuff with with like uh, you know friends who do have kids, and I'm just amazed by the the resistance I get just for like you know talking about simple things like you know circumcision, spanking, stuff like that. Um. So, so it's, it's extremely frustrating to say the least, you know, that this happens. Right. 
So throughout the whole dream, I had a nagging feeling that I was missing, forgotten, or had lost something. I had borrowed a kid's tricycle from my uncle. The bike was just big enough for me to ride. I had to go and get something from somewhere, but I don't remember what or where. Now, when you were... A kid's tricycle um, is around the age of um, three or four, is that right? Yeah. Okay, well, was there anything significant that happened to you around the age of three or four? Oof, a lot of my childhood's um, blurry. Um, I think that was when I first moved in. Like, I think I moved into the U.S. for the first time um, when I was three. Uh, when I, we lived out in Spokane, Washington. Uh, when I was four, there was because uh, I lived on a Fairchild Air Force Base. Um, and when I was four... There was a, a shooting at the hospital and like this big plane crash. Um, I, I, actually, the, the, those are my most significant memories of, of Washington, and that's about that time period. It's three and four. So your was, father was military, is that right? Yes. Okay, because you remember what the uh, black kid says, right? The two things you told me that were bad. Yeah, the one was running drugs, and what was the second one? Um, like seeing his parents kill people. And right. stuff like that. Your dad was military, right? Yes. And I would imagine that your dad received a fair amount of positive reinforcement for that. Yeah. And patient. And he, he uh, I got a lot of like, he, he when I was still uh, living with him and talking to him uh, before my parents got divorced, uh, they, uh, he would often like, he, he was very uh, encouraging. Like he would want me to join the military and all that uh, when I get, got older and all that bullshit. Right. And at one point you're in a Jeep, right? Yes. Now, I know it's, it's a commercial Jeep, but of course the Jeep, as you know, comes from general purpose vehicle, GP, right? Um, yes. It's a military. The massive Jeep, you said like an overseas Cherokee. Were you considering joining the military at some point? Um, when I was uh, 16 and 17, I've actually been through the system like six or seven times because you know i've been homeless several times throughout my life and each of those times like I, I was you know heavily considering going into the military so i'd go through maps uh and and take my ass fab and all that um so so yeah i would say like uh, i got really really close um many times <laughs> and yeah right yeah okay so in a sense then because you're you have trouble stopping the truck. The Jeep that you're in, your brake, brake, brake pedal is stiff, right? In other words, it's hard for you to resist that. And I'm really sorry to hear about the homeless thing. That's just that's terrifying and terrible. But, um, but you're having trouble slowing the brake down, right? In other words, you're in the Jeep and you're having trouble stopping it. And that may be to do with the temptation to join the military at some point, right? Yeah, uh, that would make sense, yeah. And the motorcyclist. Do you know any motorcyclists, or are you a motorcyclist? Um, I would like to be a motorcyclist, uh, but I just don't have the the, the finances to buy a motorcycle. Um, but I but I have known a lot of motorcyclists. Um, I used to be friends with like a, a motorcycle gang, so to speak, but not like how people associate um, gang like motor gangs. Um, they were just An like open air club. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, like I, I used to go shooting with this this one guy, and he had like a giant motorcycle chained up in a tree, which was hilarious. Um, stuff like that. So yeah, I, I used to have a couple biker friends. 
Right. And did you talk to them about your history or what happened in your life um, uh, openly, or was it more a relationship around you know motorbikes and and shared interests rather than than intimate? Um, it was more like a, a shared interest more than anything. I I, I I have a lot of difficulty making friends, so so like I'm I'm very introverted, guarded, you know that type of person. Yeah, because I'm just looking at this, like, so the brake, the brake pedal is stiff. That's not your fault, right? I mean, you just, you kind of sleep driving home, mm. and you can't stop the truck. Uh, you can't stop the Jeep because the brake pedal is, you've got both feet on them, you're grinding, and it's still, right? Yeah, it's, and, I still can't stop it completely. Right, but the motorcyclist, he said, you said he glared at me irritably. Yes. Right? As in, you're doing something wrong, but this isn't your fault. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me a little bit of how people would look at these kids. They're doing something wrong, but we know it's not their fault, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I think I used those exact same words uh, earlier, so, yeah. Right, so this issue of assigning blame to people who are simply struggling to survive their circumstances mm. is, is a very complex question, right? And the more complex the question, I think the more the, the dreams will examine them from a variety of perspectives. Right. I mean, the relationship that, that we have with kids who are being abused is, is complex and challenging. Yeah. Right. Like I remember taking my daughter when she was like 10 months old to the library and she was drooling. And some older kid who was like four or five was like, stop drooling. <laughs> and it's like, she's fucking 10 months, you little brat. Yeah. You know, but I get, so I get that, that he'd obviously been raised in a pretty verbally abusive environment. That would be my guess. Mm. You know, no empathy. And, uh, you know, anybody who wants to feel superior to a 10-month-old is, is pretty pathetic, right? Yeah. But, but so at the same time, I felt annoyance at this little shit for saying something completely ridiculous, like blaming a 10-month-old for drooling. But at the same time, I felt this sympathy for where he was and where he was coming from. But part of me feels, well, he should know better at this age. And the part of me thinks, well, then it must be even more brutal for him because he doesn't know better, so to speak, right? Yeah. So it's, it's complex and it's, it's challenging. Because if we give people no responsibility for their childhoods, right, or for the effects of their childhoods, then we have no choice but to excuse everything they do as adults. And that's messed up, right? Yeah. Like, so if we say to someone, like we say to these kids, they become, let's say, thieves or drug runners or whatever. And then we find out about their childhoods and we say, you are not in any way responsible for what you do as an adult because you had a bad childhood. Well, that's, that's not, that's dehumanizing them because it's taking away moral responsibility. And when we do that, we've, we've completely given up on, on people, right? Yeah. And so, but at the same time, we can't fairly judge people who come from really great households the same as we would come from people who really bad households, right? Yeah. So it's, it's complex and it's, it's challenging. And I really wanted to, to point that out. And I get called out for this all the time, right? So I'm not a determinist, but bad childhoods lead to bad outcomes, right? Yeah. Well, it's, it's complex and it's, it's challenging. And there is... I think we want to give sympathy and responsibility at the same time. Mm. Because if we give sympathy without responsibility, we are emasculating their capacity for change. But if we give responsibility without sympathy, then we're continuing the abuse by holding them to the same standards as people who came from good homes. Yeah. 
So it's it's a very challenging well, situation here. If okay. if I uh, may interrupt, um, uh, as a side note, um, you you said uh, you, you know uh, uh, bad beginnings, you know, have bad endings, so to speak. Um, I, I think it would probably uh, maybe it would help if you or pro- be more appropriate to say maybe it, it increases like a predisposition or or risk factor or something. Um, because you know, like, uh, I think it would be a fair point to make that there are certainly exceptions to to the rule. You know, I, I myself would consider my myself having a bad childhood, and I came out fairly functional. I wouldn't say functional, but fairly functional. Um, you know, so I I'd definitely say there are exceptions to the rule. Oh, without a doubt, there are exceptions to the rule. But I would imagine that you got out for which you should be incredibly proud. But I would imagine that you got out fairly functional because you held yourself to a higher standard than your history, right? Mm. And you did not give your history as your excuse. Yeah. Right? So you had to hold yourself to a higher standard, but at the same time, you couldn't hold yourself to a standard as if you hadn't had a bad childhood. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Actually, sometimes I find myself a little jealous of, uh, you know, like, you know, people my age who had good childhoods. Actually, I, a little is an understatement, but <laughs> that's oh, yeah. no, a side note. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, it's like you and I, we suddenly get kidnapped and put to Japan, and we got to learn Japanese. It's like, fuck, we sure that would be a lot easier if we just grew up with Japanese, right? It's a hell of a lot of work. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I mean, there's some good stuff that can come out of all the work that you have to do to overcome a bad childhood, but it, you know, it sure doesn't make the bad childhood a good thing. It just means you can get something good out of it. That's very different. Yeah. All right. So let's just see here. Because the environment is actually quite beautiful in a lot of your dream, right? Yeah. Actually, I would say the whole way through. Um, except maybe like the, the railroad. There was um, like a, a dark and, and you know, rainy. Hey, Rowan. Uh, sorry, my niece just came in my room. I am here. No problem. Is Alex watching you? Well, uh, I'm on I'm on the phone at the moment. So would you ask him? And when I'm done with the phone, I'll come out and play with you. <laughs> Thank you, Rowan. I love you. Sorry about that. Oh no problem. Um, so uh, yeah, like when I was at the train tracks, it was a uh, very like rainy kind of like there was like puddles everywhere. Um, but I, I forgot to mention that when I wrote it down, but I, I definitely recall that uh, that being like a little darker basically um but for the rest of the dream it is absolutely gorgeous i would say all right so i mean i think we have some some framework that i think is is worthwhile looking at i'm not saying to do the whole dream would take a a long long time but i do want to just just before we end i do want to dip into this bit at the end Mm. cody and chrissy and uh maynard james keenan (laughs) <laughs> the economically inclined self-medicating lead singer. Um, Sorry. So this is a real guy. Does he actually do side projects? Is he doing solo projects? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, he's he's got a lot of bands. Um, I, I mentioned three before. He, uh, he was lead singer of Tool. Um, there's another band called Perfect Circle and another band called Pucifer. And then he has like lots of individual solo projects that he does like, anonymously and stuff like okay, that. So wait, Tool... Um, Perfect Circle and Pucifer. 
Yes. That's just Lucifer with the word poo in front, right? Yeah. Uh, if you listen to music, it's kind of like a pun on, on the term pussy and Lucifer at the same time. Oh, so P-U, right? P-U-Cifer? Yeah. Yeah. Lucifer. Okay. Tool. Okay, so um, Tool reminds me of the black kid who says he does horrible things to, for his parents. Pardon? The, the, the little black kid who says he does horrible things for his parents, running drugs yeah. and all yeah. that, right? So he's being used as a tool, right? Yes. Um, we have so many perfect circles in this dream, it's ridiculous, <laughs> right? I mean, bike yeah. wheels are everywhere, car wheels, you do U-turns, right? I mean, so perfect circles are everywhere here, right? Yes. And uh, Pucifer is the kid shitting in the yard, right? Yeah. Because she's under devilish influences and she's pooing. Or, right. And it's a girl, so right? genitalia would also tie into there as well, right? Yeah. So um, the, the density of metaphors around the band names, I think, is... Right. So perfect circle, to me, is, is the cycle of the generations, right? A perfect circle is you can't escape your history, mm -hmm. right? It just goes round and round. Actually, well, you use as a tool. Sorry, go ahead. Um, it, I was, I'm sorry to interrupt again. I just just like random thoughts coming to my head. Um, An interruption. Uh, the band Tool. Um, they actually do have a song from their second album uh, called Prison Sex, and it's actually about this topic about you know the cycle of abuse, um, basically replaying itself over and over, um, with an equally creepy music video, I might add. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I even. Even there, like the the metaphors are are going, uh, are, are cycling in on themselves. Yeah, I got to imagine that the video for the f song called "Prison Sex" is not featuring a guest appearance from the Wiggles. Okay. <laughs> um, all right, so um, so you're saying, have you heard the side projects? Mm -hmm. And he asked if you have something from the kitty bike. Yeah, I remarked that it, I had it and had. And even cleaned it. I was looking for it while they were looking for my tool CDs. I don't understand that. What from the kitty bike? Um, I said earlier that I picked up a um, like a bike or a train, like some sort of small like vehicle toy of some sort, um, because the Jeep, as I was doing a U-turn, turned into a kitty bike, and as I wrecked it, like parts fell off, including right. a wheel and all these toys, and I it had fallen into the puddle or pond or whatever and I picked it up and, and cleaned it once I got home alright now he's, he's never heard anything commercial from Tool um, so the, the, is this like a band that is alternative and you know they, their fans are paranoid about them selling out or getting a big hit or something like yeah yeah I was into them before they became big and <laughs> for God's sake don't write something catchy otherwise you know your your street cred is doomed is, is that the kind of thing yeah they were one of those alternative bands that were always mainstream but their fans are convinced that they're not <laughs> you're one of those actually so it's actually kind of like an a, a act of irony I think um, but yeah yeah <laughs> okay so uh, so the idea that popular success for the band would be harmful to the self-image of the followers as outsiders. Is that right? Correct. Okay, so commercial. So success is bad. Yeah. Right. Now, obviously, there's a middle ground here. And like, no success means that they never got out of the garage and nobody's ever heard of them, right? Yes. Right. So that's a kind of a false self thing, right? 
I mean, to to be invested in whether the band is popular or not is obviously kind of bullshit. Like the music is the music, right? The number of people Correct. who like the music doesn't mean, you know, George Bourne Shaw said that any painting that 10% or more of the population likes ought to be burned because <laughs> it just must be terrible, right? Just by definition. And, you know, the, the, this, this sad-ass pedophilic erotica of Fifty Shades of Grey probably falls into that category as well. <laughs> the worst, most infantile, horrible porn ever. But anyway, um, the, the, so the idea that you have to kind of closely guard the perceived success of the band in order to enjoy the music means that you don't actually have a relationship to the music directly, but more due to uh, you have a relationship with the, uh, the, the image of the band rather than the music itself. Mm. Does that sort of make any sense? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, again, this wasn't me, though. Like, I, I very much enjoy the music, but uh, <laughs> that was my no, Cody saying that. No, but this is that. your friend. So why is, why is snarky? Why, is, why does he start getting snarky? He says, you replied, I didn't say anything about commercial, but that I'd asked if he'd heard any of the new stuff. And he started getting snarky and mouthy and why? Um, what was he saying? Anytime. Uh, I lived with my Uncle Cody for a, a year or two, I can't remember how long. Um, this was before I, I live where I live now, um, and and he was a very verbally abusive, very um, quick to anger. So like me, like you know, correcting him on anything would like you know throw him off, uh, and he would start getting upset and saying "fuck you," you know, "go fuck yourself," or mouthing off stuff like that. So and and I think that shows because. The second I realized I was dreaming about Cody, I got pissed off and woke up and was in a so, bad so mood for the rest of the day. Uncle? Yes. Okay, so smart. So he's actually just like a, just being an asshole, right? I mean, that's pretty horrible things to say to yeah. a family member, to anyone really, right? The sort of fuck you and go fuck yourself kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And uh, he's the brother of which parent? Of my dad. And when were you living with him? Um, I would say about, uh, it was either three or four years ago, a while back. It feels like forever, actually. But And he was not actually into this band, I would assume, right? No, he was very much into this band. Um, oh, he was? Yeah, like, uh, like I remember him telling me like how he used to do acid while listening to, to certain songs, or, you know, um, when he was in Utah, he'd saw him once or something like that, you know, stuff like that. So he was, he was actually pretty, pretty big into the band. Uh, like I was, um, oh, yeah, actually, no. I mean, if you're an alternative band and you haven't made a big in Utah, I mean, you just haven't made a big at all. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. So, um, I mean, obviously this is, what's interesting is, is there are some serious issues in your family and we don't have to get into them. I mean, I'm obviously if you're, if you're homeless and, and you've got, you know, uncles telling you to go fuck yourself. I mean, this is some seriously dysfunctional stuff in the family for which I'm incredibly sympathetic and incredibly sorry. I mean, but what's interesting is, and I don't mean this sort of clinically or coldly or anything like that. You know, what's interesting is the more dysfunctional the family, the more you fight over inconsequential shit. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, have you ever noticed that pattern? I noticed that when I was very young, <laughs> like I was probably right. eight years old when I first noticed that. Right. Well, tell me what you noticed. Well, like I remember um, one time, um, both my sisters, um, we like it was uh, two of my sisters and I were living with my my single mother at the time, and uh, I remember my one of my older sisters, her bike got stolen, so my two sisters proceeded to 
have a fist fight over who would call the police um, about the stolen bike. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Well, hang on a sec. <laughs> it's always right at the end that you get the meaning of the dream. Yeah. So, tell me, tell me that again. How old were you? Eight, right? And your bike uh, was stolen. Yes. Bike uh, stolen, and who, your sisters were fighting over who was going to call the cops. Yes. Okay. Well, that's the dream. Hmm. Okay. Do you know what that dream is? Uh, um, I kind of like feel like I should, but uh, I'm kind of having okay, doubts. So you know what we were talking about? Yeah, we were talking about calling you know, the authorities. Yeah. Earlier about the kids, right? Yeah. So even little children will call the cops over a bike, but no adults will call the cops to protect children. Mm-hmm. No, you don't get it yet. Because nobody sits there and says, well, if we call the cops, everything's just going to get worse, right? Yeah. But that's the excuse that people make up about calling the cops about children being abused. Mm. Do you see what I'm saying? The cops so, so are you're very helpful when it comes to your stolen bike, but the cops will not be helpful when it comes to protecting children who are being abused. And it's about a bike. Uh, I'm... I'm having a little difficulty with the self-referencing okay, no problem. <laughs> metaphors here. Sorry. At this point, so when you were eight, how old were your sisters? Um, my one was, uh, ooh, um, I think thirteen and sixteen to guesstimate. Okay, so let's just say, so a thirteen-year-old knows that if a crime is occurring, you call the cops. Right? Correct. Yes. Nobody in your neighborhood, including you as an adult, said a crime is occurring with these children that are being beaten. Let's call the cops. Correct. Do you not see the disparity here? Uh, I, I, I do. Um, the bike should be protected and the cops will help you. The children can't be protected and the cops won't help. Yeah. So, so the dream is basically Tommy. It's basically me kind of fighting up against my own apathy towards the situation, I would suppose. Well, it's not just yours. It's everyone's. Okay. That's the society that you live in, right? Yeah. Nobody calls the cops about kids. Well, very few people do. But if a bike gets stolen, everybody's fighting over who should call the cops, right? Yeah. Hmm. In other words, a bike is much more valuable than a child. A bike is much more deserving of protection than a child. We will use the state to protect a bike. We will not use the state to protect a child. Cops will help you with a bike. Cops will harm a child. That's actually pretty, pretty, um, that, that doesn't feel good to think about, <laughs> to be blunt. Um, no, but this is empirically, this is, this is, yeah, the case, right? yeah, this is the case. Um, I, I mean, the sisters weren't fighting about who's going to get to call the cops about the children being abused next door, were they? Pardon? I, I know it's not the same time frame, but your, your sisters wouldn't have been fighting about who's going to call the cops to protect the children being abused next door. Um, probably not. Oh, I, I, I can't say, honestly. I think you probably can. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean... Unless they're statistical anomalies compared to everyone else I ever knew as a child. Mm. 
compared to everyone else you ever knew when you were growing up who knew about these kids being abused, right? Yeah. Unless they're wildly statistically anomalous, right? The essence here is something called childism, which is the incredible prejudice we have against children. Yeah. Which it, it, the children are, are less than, than bikes. Sorry, I'm just uh, it's it's um uh, like I I understand what you're saying. It's just like I I get this like uh like I wouldn't say emotional block, but like the the emotions I am feeling are are very hard to to compute, so to speak. Sure. Yeah, well, I understand our society would be unrecognizable if we actually respected children. I mean, our society could not function for thirty more seconds if we actually had genuine empathy and sympathy towards children. Yeah. Right? I mean, the first thing we'd do is, is we'd stop national debts. The second thing we'd do is we would um, uh, privatize schools. Uh, the third thing we would do is, is make sure that society was structured in such a way that taxes weren't so high that two people had to go and work where one person used to be able to stay home. We mm-hmm. would unschool. We would homeschool. We would, we would entirely organize our society around what would be best for children. And what's best for children is not that hard to figure out because children are continually telling us both personally and statistically what is best for them and what is we you know we would we would be very careful about who we got married to and would be damn careful about who we had children with because we'd know if we got divorced we'd be exposing our children to 13 times higher likelihood of being abused yeah right so we'd simply ask children what do you want hey do you like school kids no what don't you like about it it's boring oh well let's fix that because children are actually important. Because, because children, as the most helpless and most dependent members of society, are the ones we should be listening to first when it comes to designing our society. Because they sure as shit didn't choose to be here, right? Correct. They didn't choose the country or the culture or the religion or the family or anything that they were born into. So if we were to actually organize our society around that which was best for children, our society would be utterly unrecognizable in less than one day. Hey, kids, do you like being told about hell and going to church? No. Okay, well, we won't do that then. Do you like homework? No. Oh, well, let's not do homework then because it statistically is not relevant to your success. In fact, it's counterproductive to your success. That's fairly well established. Right. Do you want mommy or daddy to stay home? Do you like being yelled at? Hey, do you like being spanked? Do you like being bullied? Do you like being neglected? Do you like being ignored? Do you want to spend more time with your parents? Most children would say, don't like being yelled at, don't like being spanked, don't like being ignored, and I want to spend more time with my parents, and I want my parents to not fight. Oh, well, then we won't fight in front of you then for sure, because that's not good for you, right? Hey, kids, do you like it when your uncle says, go fuck yourself? No. Okay, (laughs) well, then he won't do that, because that's not good for you. Do you like getting on a school bus and going on a drive to a big old prison design system with a bunch of other kids you don't know? No. Oh, well, let's not do that then. Let's do it the way it should be, which is you learn at home with your family. And let's for sure not use you as collateral to pay off entitled fat bastards in the public sector in the here and now. No more national debt. I mean, that's terrible. It's completely dehumanizing children. Uh, If we actually humanize children and listen to them and design our decisions as adults around that, which was actually best for our children, Society would be completely unrecognizable in less than a day.
And, and the degree to which this doesn't even cross our minds is the degree to which we treat children as worse than slaves. Because at least the slave owner has some economic interest in the health of his slaves and has some incentive to try and get them to work. The degree to which we sacrifice our children for the sake of our own greed, need, defensiveness, illusions, the degree to which we view them as irritatingly resistant vessels to be sanded down and shaped into a smooth mirror of our own prejudices is the degree to which we simply do not view children as human beings. Childism is the most fundamental prejudice in the world. And it is the root from which all other prejudices grow. Children are not deserving of our protection. Uh, we will call the cops over a bike. We will not call the cops over child abuse because children are less important to us than bicycles. As a society, we will sell off the unborn because they're not real. They don't exist. They, you know, We will tell our kids to do their goddamn homework and get up early when they're tired and go to school and be bored and be yelled at. I mean, in many places in the States, you still get hit even in school. We don't ask our children what they would like, what would be good for them. We don't even ask the experts. You know, people will, when buying a new car, do weeks or months of research. But parents, do they sit there and say, well, what's the latest research about child raising? No. It's a perfect circle. For most parents, just do the same shit that was done unto them. I am annoyed that my children don't want to go to church and be told that they're sinful and that thinking about sex will make them go to hell. I'm annoyed and irritated that my children aren't enjoying school and doing well in school. I'm annoyed and irritated that my children are restless, that they don't want to go to bed, that they're unstimulated. I am bored and annoyed that my lack of contact with my children is driving them into video games and laziness. I am bored and annoyed that my children are not convenient to me. How convenient is our fucking society to children? How much of our society is structured around what children actually need and want and deserve as the most helpless and unchosen members of our entire clan, our entire tribe? They're the only ones who don't choose to be it. You're an adult, you can move someplace else if you want. You can get divorced, you can change jobs, you can move countries, you can adopt any religion or no religion, anything. You can change political affiliations to no political affiliations. You can do whatever you want as an adult. And we only extend choice to those who are choosing to be here. We extend no choice to those who have not chosen to be here. And this fundamental prejudice that we have against children, the dehumanization of what it is to be a child in our society is foundational to our society because a society could not survive for one thin second. If we actually lived by what we say, we live by. Oh, I do anything for my children. Oh, children are the most important resource society has. Children are the future. Children are wonderful. Children are great. Children are the best. Well, how about we actually try living like that? No, 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 no. We can't do that. No, because then we have to take on public sector unions, and then we have to take on national debts, and then we have to take on our entitlement, forced redistribution of wealth system. Oh, then I have to give up some of my material possessions because I won't be as rich if we're not both working. Well, I actually have to call the authorities if a child is being abused. I have to treat children as maybe mildly more important than a stolen bike from an eight-year-old boy. Well, 
How could our society do that? What we have called society would not be society if we weren't so unbelievably bigoted against the needs of children and the emotional realities and rational preferences of children. We could not have the world that we have if we viewed children as the most important members of our society, as that which no aspect of society should sacrifice the needs of. Racism we understand, sexism we understand, it's still there. Childism, we're not even exploring. The word was first coined in the 1970s. How many people have ever heard of it? This is the first time I've heard of it. Yeah. The, the, the term has been coined 40 years ago. Prejudice against children. Jesus Christ, we can hit children legally in most places in the Western world. What the fuck? What other fucking group can you hit with legal impunity? And we don't even have a word for prejudice against children? The idea that a child should be free of the prejudices of his or her parents. I mean, Dawkins talks about this. You can't talk about a Christian kid or a Muslim kid. You can only talk about a, a child of Christian or Muslim parents. That's a tiny, tiny sliver of a possible awakening to the idea of prejudice against children of childism. But the, the very idea that a child should be allowed to develop free of the prejudices of culture and superstition and nationalism, religion, that the child should have an unfettered and free access to reason and evidence and develop as the child sees fit without irrational interference and bullying and ostracism from parents is incomprehensible to us. Because children are lumps of clay to be molded into the distorted shapes we call culture. And any child who resists that is a bad child and must be drugged or threatened or ostracized or beaten. Any child who fails to please the prejudices of the parents is by definition a bad child and must be broken on the wheel of those prejudices until they form the acceptable mold that they're supposed to. The idea that, that children have things to teach us about reality because they have not been propagandized yet, is so incomprehensible to us. I mean, for most people, they, 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 they couldn't even imagine that. Children are just bad, unformed, empty, shapeless lumps of clay to be molded into the beautiful art of modern culture. But the idea that we should actually look at what is best for children, scientifically, and, and ask children what is best for them, and design our society and our families and our lives that way, incomprehensible because that would be to treat children as even vaguely approaching the status of pets right we have far more consideration for pets than we do for children i mean you, you post a video of some guy harming a dog some guy kicking a dog and everybody goes insane you post a video of someone that this judge who beat his daughter with a rubber hose or whatever it was and like 90 percent of the comments are like good for him she was disrespecting him you you post a video of a guy withholding food from his dog for disobedience and everybody goes completely insane and they'll call the cops but a guy shoots his daughter's laptop and people are like yeah you show him who's boss right if we could 
if we could just even think about elevating children to the moral status of your average pet, the world would be unrecognizable. It would be a fucking paradise compared to where it is now. But children are less than inanimate objects. Children are less than pets. Children are simply things to be molded to suit our preferences and prejudices. So, this um, may be a bit more than the dream contains, but I think that there's a lot in there of that. But childism mm. is something to really meditate on. To what degree, when we look around, do we see children as fully formed human beings who have more to teach us than we have to teach them? Mm. We would go further in assigning wisdom to children because we have withheld it from them for so long, we would go further, right? People who've been starved of humanity need extra humanity. So the idea, like yesterday uh, during dinner, we went through uh, the Ten Commandments. My daughter is quite fascinated by stories of what we call the big invisible guy. We went through the Ten Commandments, trying to figure out which ones make sense, which ones didn't. We tried to figure out which, if we had Ten Commandments in our family, what they would be. <clears throat> she had incredible things to add. She's four. She had amazing things to chat about. Like, amazing things to chat about. And it was really fun. And uh, startlingly original things to say that were incredibly helpful to me. And yeah, I actually... Um I mean, you heard my niece earlier. She's she's very much the same. Actually, um, that reminds me. Um, you met my sister, um, and she called into the show before, so you might actually. I, I don't know if you've met my niece or not. Um, it was. Um, you remember the 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 girl who had the uh, Panthers in her bedroom? Oh, I certainly do. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so that was my sister. Um, oh. And I believe you also met at Anarchy in NYC. And I don't know if uh, she... Oh, yes, she... I do. I definitely, I remember. Yeah, we were sitting there. Um, we, um, yeah, we had a beer. She was there with a the fellow, and uh, it was very nice. To, it was very nice to meet her. She's a very, very nice uh, nice person. Yeah, she's awesome, actually. <laughs> but um, her, her kid, Rowan, um, this, this kid's awesome, actually. I, I didn't used to like kids. But once she had Rowan, like Rowan changed a lot of things for me and, and how I approach, um, you know, handling kids and, and how I talk to them. And I, I try as much as possible to talk to Rowan as an adult and try to, like, negotiate with her when I want things or when she wants things and so on and so forth. Right. Well, that's good. And I know we've gone way over in terms of the show, but I really wanted to get that, that thing in. Um, I just finished reading a book called Childism. Uh, by a woman, um, it was a very frustrating read because I think she just missed so many essential points, just kept referring to the UN Declaration of Rights and all that, and just doesn't really understand the degree <laughs> of the prejudice even that she's writing about, but it's probably worth having a read for people, but uh, anyway. Uh, I really appreciate the dream. Uh, I wish we did have more time to spend on it, because I think it's a very powerful and potent topic. Mm. But, um, uh, yeah, look for those little disagreements, you know, that you have about things like bands and stuff, because usually there's a lot more important stuff to talk about. Okay. Thanks as always to James uh, for uh, manning the show. I hope that he's uh, had a chance to pee. I know I'm ready. <laughs> uh, I feel like the Hoover Dam over here. But um, uh, thanks to everyone who support. If you find the show valuable, um, really do appreciate uh, if you can help out uh, at fdrurl.com forward slash donate. Of course, we do take uh, Bitcoins as well, uh, which I really appreciate as well, uh, getting the opportunity to. I'm, I'm a huge Bitcoin fan. You know, it's a way of trading without funding the war machine. So um, if you have a few rattling around that you'd like to hand over, uh, sign up for subscriptions. You get some really great stuff with the subscriptions. I don't really talk about this too much, but I just wanted to mention it, you know, as a sort of a goodie to throw in the bag. 
So um, uh, at the gold level plus, um, actually no, even at the, so there's bronze, silver, gold, and uh, diamond, and then a philosopher king. Uh, each one of those levels has uh, you know private message boards if you want to exchange information with other people uh, outside the the communal board. Uh, there are books. Uh, my my thesis is there. My master's thesis, which is really good. Uh, and well worth having a read. I've got novels in there. The audiobook of The God of Atheists and the PDF of The God of Atheists is there. The, um, my novel almost is there uh, as well in the, in the donator section. And there's hundreds and hundreds of really great premium podcasts that are really super advanced and some very, very powerful stuff. So you do, you know, hopefully get the satisfaction of helping the show out. But there's lots of really great stuff uh, in the, um, in the donator section. Some really advanced conversations, some really advanced topics. And I hope that you will. Uh, you will check them out. Uh, so, yeah, sign up for a subscription uh, and donations, of course. One-time donations are always welcome. If you don't mind, the subscription is a little bit more predictable for me to figure out how much money I can spend on various initiatives that are going forward. Um, but um, uh, thanks again to Pete Drungle and Sean Lennon, of course, for their help with the documentary. Um, it's still progressing along. The music is taking a little longer, but um, with Sean Lennon's uh, very kind help and Pete Drungle's incredible expertise, we are doing uh, live recordings, like it's not just synthesized, but actual musicians and singers and all that kind of stuff. So it's going to sound magnificent, even better than what I just did. So um, if you'd like to help out with that, uh, I would appreciate that as well. Um, the conversation is going fantastically. The growth of the show, I think, is going really well. And uh, it's really due to very kind, you know, bottom level, neck deep financial support that people can kick in. You know, 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month. It's really not much. Uh, obviously, don't do anything you can't afford to the guy who sent me a dollar yesterday. Well, I won't say anything, <laughs> but I had a few words that came to mind. But uh, if you would like to help out, you know, 20 bucks a month, what, 70, 80 cents a day, uh, I think that hopefully is manageable to you. And I promise to to uh, to put the money to, to good use in spreading the good word. So thank you, everybody, so much. Have yourselves a wonderful week. I will talk to you soon.